Your move, creep. Mission back freezer. You both Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's night more! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh your opinion, man. Hello everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the show where we talk about older movies, we talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. So, Austin, it is June, also mm-hmm. known as Pride Month. Mm-hmm. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, we are going to be talking about a movie that is about LGBTQ characters, directed by a movie that Oh, wait, is, is Todd Haynes, how does his sexuality, openly gay and identifies as irreligious and he lives in Portland, Oregon, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> this might be, is this the first, I think the only other movies with, with a gay character we did was Legally Blonde. And mm-hmm. those weren't like the best representations of gay characters. No. The film we are talking about today is... Velvet Goldmine from 1998. Directed by Todd Haynes, uh, American filmmaker from Los Angeles, uh, who's made a lot of weird films. Oh, yeah. Well, he's made a lot of different movies. Yeah. He likes to make movies about musicians. That's what it seems like. He's working on something for Apple TV Plus called The Velvet Underground, which is... Which is, is, uh, is it based on the band? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so there you go. Sticking with that music music yeah. theme. And How many movies have you seen from Todd Hayes? I've only seen Velvet Goldmine. Okay, see, I've only seen parts of Velvet Goldmine. And I'll explain the parts part, but mm-hmm. everything else I haven't. Even though, like, I've heard of Carol. People, yeah. people raved about that movie. It's got, uh, it's got, uh, it's got Kate, Kate Blanchett. Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Sarah Paulson's in it. Oh, from um, uh, American Horror Story? Mm-hmm. Sarah Paulson, Kyle Chandler for Friday Night's Lights. So it's a it's a good cast, you know? And I've heard great things about it. People people love it. Yeah, didn't it win an Oscar? Uh, I believe so. Uh, let me actually check right now. They got nominations. They got nominated. The, the, the movie got a lot of nominees. Six uh, Oscar nominations. Well, but yeah, this man, Todd Haynes, is an openly gay man, director, who f- likes to focus on LGBTQ stories. So we, Austin and I were talking about films that we'd like to talk about this week, and there was a long list. It made me realize I I haven't seen that many films that focus on LGBTQ stories. Yeah. Not, like, it's not, uh, you know, everyone has the genre that they lean towards. I tend to lean towards action and blockbusters, you know, I mean, is that, it's kinda, I'm the guy that brought, I'm the guy that brought forth Transformers, so. <laughs> it, but it is kind of weird that, like gay is a genre of movie isn't it like why why does why is it that way i wouldn't say it's a genre but it's definitely it's not a genre i'd say it's um it's like a it's like an emphasis right it's like you have films about latinos gays you know i wouldn't say that it's a genre but it's definitely a grouping or a an emphasis you know what i mean and i don't think growing up or even even right now i'd say that i've been i've seen a lot of stories that emphasize 
gay stories or characters. I've seen movies that have gay characters or that have, like, the romantic, the, the gay the subplot and stuff like that. But, yeah. like, on, I mean, honestly, recently, the only films that I've seen that have focused on that, that have been at the forefront is Moonlight, Call mm-hmm. Me By Your Name. That's a short list. <laughs> it's a very short list. Um, maybe there might be another film in there, but I just can't recall right now. Oh, so, I remember those two and uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, the ones that come to mind. Oh, I haven't even seen that one. Oh, that See, there's really a good. lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of movies like we we, mm-hmm. we had that list down. It's like, oh, I've heard of that one. 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 I've yeah. never seen them. Yeah. Oh, I do really like uh, this one. I think I saw it. Um, it was right when I was learning more about David Bowie's music. I've I've been a fan of David Bowie, and this movie is kind of about David Bowie, but not really. It's it's interesting because Todd Haynes has a kind of history about making movies about people he doesn't really have the legal authority to do so. <laughs> But he still does it. But he still does it. And I think they're really good. And it shows how much he loves the music and how much these pe- these people mean to him. Yeah, because he did this short film called Superstar, the Carpenter story or, or something. And he did he shot the film with, with Barbies. And it was about, like, Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters. Oh, but it but it wasn't explicitly about her. It It was, and he used music that he wasn't legally, like, allowed to use and there's a lawsuit over it and everything and this was like it was a short film that he did in like 10 days (laughs) fucking ballsy man oh is 43 minutes released in 1988 and this is like he never made a movie before like a i don't think what's his first feature length movie something called poison and that was in 91 a science fiction drama horror (laughs) But yeah, and then there's Velvet Goldmine, which uh, is a David Bowie like B side from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders. What's in that album? The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. There's a B side called Velvet Goldmine, and he wasn't allowed to use the song. David Bowie said no because he thought the movie was making fun of him. <laughs> is the movie making fun of him? No. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Like, like when I saw this movie, I saw it as like a love letter to glam rock, which is like that seventies, um, like, like that's that part of David Bowie's career. Uh, T Rex, Mark Bolin. Do you know a T Rex is? No. You probably know the song <laughs> Deborah from Baby Driver, right? Yes. Yeah. From, from Baby Driver, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love I love T Rex, uh, especially those that album that came out with uh bang a gong that's such a cool song and they this movie has a lot of music from that era and i was like the sound this is like one of the best soundtracks that's ever been put together in my opinion anyway oh shit okay that's a bold statement man oh, it's it's a really fun movie you know it i remember like the the zoom ins and, and dramatic scenes it's just like it just feels really like fun, you know. It's a fun movie. Okay. Part of it is, yeah, and it's it's kind of sad in places as well. Well, and it's well, weird in places as well. 
too. Well, Todd Haynes seems to be seems like a filmmaker that likes sad stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, none of his movies look very uh, like from the posters and stuff. They don't seem very. Um, you know, La La Land esque, where it's like <laughs> we love life, and you know, it's it seems yeah. very like, seems like uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening. Mm-hmm. You know, not all of it positive, I imagine, but again, this is just from the outside. Yeah. So uh, you're a, so this is partially kind of about David Bowie. How big of a David Bowie fan are you? Um, I'm a bit. I don't I don't know how big of a David Bowie fan I am because I I do like this era of david bowie um i'm i do like the the hunky dory david bowie but as as his career went on i wasn't like listening to all of those albums you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i'm like uh i don't know if there's a scale from one to ten of how big of a david bowie fan i am i would say like seven or six. Oh, okay oh that's, that's respectable that's good I'm, I'm a big fan but i feel like i can't say that because there's so much of his work that i just don't listen to or haven't listened to but from what you have heard you really like it yeah okay see if we're using that scale on me i am probably a two out of ten damn what you it's hate not david bowie or no, no 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 i don't hate david bowie i i don't care for david <laughs> bowie <laughs> wow well, he, okay it, well, no 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 actually let me paraphrase so the listeners don't uh so the listeners don't don't go against me it's just that I don't know about David Bowie, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I didn't grow up listening to David Bowie. He wasn't an instrumental part of growing up. See, I right? would say the same, except for that song he did with um, uh, the Rolling Stones guy, Dancing in the Street, I think. I was forced to learn this song in grade school, and for a while that was the only David Bowie song I knew. But I don't. at some point I, I saw that, a lot of music that I listen to, like uh, Trent Reznor, the Nine Inch Nails, there's a, a song that he does with David Bowie. And he always, I would read up on people that I like and see they're, they're always inspired by David Bowie. So I'm like, who the, who the hell is this David Bowie guy? As I was like in my late, mid to late teens and then started listening to his stuff. Mm, okay, okay. See, I, I never went through that phase. David Bowie was not someone that I was like, I grew up listening to. And there was never a point where I was like, I wonder who this guy is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the weird relationship I've had with music is that sometimes like I don't listen to albums. Right. Like I listen to songs, but there's not like a musical artist that I attach myself to. And the one that I closest that I did attach myself closest to was Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know. Yeah, look at how that turned out. Um, but that was really because my father introduced me to Michael oh, yeah. Jackson as a kid. And, I mean, Michael's songs, they just, they bop. You could easily bop to them. They're really, mm-hmm. and they're just, they've got a groovy, I, I can't, look, man, in terms of music, I am dumb. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. It's funny because I don't know what, <laughs> I don't. How to, how, like, when it comes to movies, you know, I'd like to think I can articulate why I like a movie, you know, even though not always in a cohesive way. Mm-hmm. But with music, I can't. I could just say, I like it, and I don't know why. <laughs> I can't explain why. And I feel like a lot of people who really appreciate music, who really like listening to music and albums and like following musicians, like David Bowie. Yeah. Right? But I think as maybe for casual listeners, I don't know if that's the case. 
uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, mm-hmm. right? But usually with casual li- listeners, it's Michael Jackson or the Beatles or... And I'm not saying if you're a fan of those that you're a casual... <laughs> Obviously, there's degrees. I'm not, yeah. you know... You could be a hardcore musician, uh, critic, teacher, whatever, and love the Beatles. But, I mean, I'm a basic bitch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... I've never had this need to want to listen to David Bowie. I've heard a few songs, and I'm like, okay. I, w- I would recommend the the one that I like, the uh, the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. I think that's like a really good album. A lot well, th- of different kinds of songs. Is that like the musical? Is that from the music from his musical era that this movie is inspired from? Um, yeah, it's around that era because he has this like there's like three albums that were released together. Um, I forgot. One of them was ri- the rise and fall, and then there was the one after that, where he has like uh, Aladdin Sane or something. He has like this alter ego that he would do. Okay, so it's the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, and then Aladdin Sane, and I think Diamond Dogs. I think those are the those are the three that where he's like in this like character. And then after that, it's kind of different. Then it, then you get into like the, um, like the, what's that movie? Labyrinth? Like the music, mm. like from that era. It's like, it's different. Okay. I guess Hunky Dory was before Ziggy Stardust. I do, maybe that's why I like that album. Because I could feel him going into that, that genre. It's, uh, this is all new to me. This is an education. And I feel like I'm going to have to probably listen to some David Bowie. Just yeah. to kind of, you know, try to because again this is this is a world that i am not used to or used to watching i like rock but i didn't really know i don't know that much about glam rock glam and rock. Well, David everybody Bowie knows is... the uh rock and roll anthem part two that's like the the sports anthem by gary glitter it was oh yeah hey that one exactly and even then i didn't know what the name for that was until joker came out <laughs> oh my god and then, and then you and then you find out the context behind it or like what what he did later on and it's like oh yeah and yeah, there's okay. a lot of that's the ugly side of glam is there's a lot of uh people in this genre of music that have questionable relationships with minors david bowie included Re- whoa what yeah. yeah wait 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 wait. was he with a kid uh there's a kid that says that she was with him um, how, how old was she not old enough uh... there there was a, a a groupie who 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 would tout herself as like the the best groupie or something uh something star I don't think she was with him, but she was with um, a guitarist from the New York Dolls. She was with Iggy Pop. Her younger sister was with Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a it's not very very good look on it's it's like that with a lot of these male artists from the seventies. They they just they're so. People love them so much and they have all this power and they can kind of abuse it at times. I think that they even go over that in the movie, how oh, really? all the fame can kind of twist their personalities and stuff. Well, there's it's, something about there's something about a musician that just drives people crazy, yeah. right? Even more so than like athletes or 
like movie stars or something about musicians that they just wield like maybe not that much money or but there's something about them that's so like so drawing mm-hmm. that just makes it just people don't give a fuck you know like they're like you, i mean look at michael jackson where i mean yeah i'm not saying michael i'm, I'm just saying I don't want to compare the two, but like Michael was accused of these horrible things, but I, some people don't give a fuck. They're yeah. like, I'm ride or die Michael till the day I die. And it's like, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. fuck, look at R. Kelly, man. Yeah. <laughs> it got so bad that the Boondogs had to make an episode making fun of the people who supported R. Kelly, R. Kelly even mm-hmm. though there's a tape out there of what happened. Yeah, and it wasn't until, like, what, 15 years after that that he actually served jail time? Oh, did he actually serve jail time? Didn't he? And I don't think he did. I think never? he got away with he it. He still hasn't gone to jail? I don't know if he did. I mean, w- there was that whole cancel, or, or what is it, the R. Kelly doc that came out a few years back, uh, where it was a bunch of women talking about how he treated them and what went down. There is something about these musicians that it's just so drawing that people just, you know, they, they want to oh, be, dude, he's, he's in jail. R Kelly. Yeah. R Kelly's in jail right now. Yes. Oh, <gasps> he went to jail. Yeah. Day. When did he go? January 29th, 2021. Oh, pff, oh, pff, okay. I, okay. I was like, Oh, did it happen last year or the year before that? Okay, it's been it a weird just year. happened like five. It, it happened like five months ago. Okay, but I mean, like, it's still good. But I thought people came to their senses earlier, sooner. No. He, he, man, that man should have been in jail a long time sooner. <laughs> yeah, but it's very interesting, and maybe that's why David Bowie didn't like the film that much. You know, if it was, if it goes into this, uh, if it, goes it doesn't the dark go. Side of rock. It, it goes into it, but it doesn't like incriminate him of anything. I don't know if that was even the intent of the movie. It's just kind of like to to celebrate this this time in music, like this genre of music, really, not the time, but that mm-hmm. that genre. Um, but it also goes into some of the not so pleasant things that happened, which I think is a, is a sign of a good storyteller. Yeah, you know, if you try to gloss things up too much, we're we're gonna see through the artifice. You're you're straight up lying, or we're gonna straight see through the artifice, and we're just not gonna take it seriously. I appreciate a filmmaker saying, "Hey, man, this 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 thing is cool, but it's got some problems." I I always respect that. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. In terms of as a whole, this film is not within my range at all. Uh, again, I I haven't really seen too many stories that emphasize LGBTQ stories. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with 1970. The, the I'm not I'm not familiar with the 1970s music scene, let alone glam rock. You want to talk 70s? Let's start. Let's talk movies. Let's talk Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. this is not in my wheel. And this is even a, this is kind of based on an artist that I have no real familiarity with. You know, yeah, I know that David Bowie was in Labyrinth, and that's because Marissa, our mutual friend, keeps talking about it. I won't shut <laughs> up you, about it. And you refuse to see it. Exactly. And. <laughs> And that David Bowie was in Zoolander and The Prestige, and oh, yeah. he's a handsome man. Yeah. That's all I really know. That's <laughs> there's so, also a like David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Do you know what Iggy Pop is? Yes, I am familiar with Iggy Pop. They had a kind of like a musical partnership for a little while in the '70s. Like they would do each other's songs. They did. They wrote music together and stuff. And Ewan McGregor is in this. Uh, so. The David Bowie character is called Brian Slade, and he's played by Jonathan Rhys Myers. 
mm-hmm. from the Tudors, and Ewan mm-hmm. McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is playing Kurt mm-hmm. Wilde, who's like the the Iggy Pop to <gasps> Myers's uh, David Bowie. Oh, because I've seen pictures of Ewan McGregor, and he, he's got that long hair. He looks yeah. like... Okay. Yeah. And his, his name is Kurt Wilde, but like... He's like a mix between Lou Reed from the Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. A, it's really this interesting, is... and I I think their their relationship becomes sexual, right? So I don't know if if they're like they're trying to not. I don't know. I don't know why he he really had a problem with this movie. Well, was the, is David Bowie gay? He's bisexual. Oh, okay. Has he always been bisexual? Like, I, I mean, has he? Has he always made it clear that he was bisexual or was was he like early early on in his career? I am straight. And then he decided to come out. What? How? Oh, I'm not really sure how how uh, things were like back then. But I think the him being bisexual was something that bothered a lot of people back then. And mm. made him controversial because he was so successful. And he's of this like non typical uh sexual orientation mm-hmm. so i don't i don't know it'd be maybe we could look that up we could look up their their section the, the history of how they present themselves sexually how they presented their sexuality yeah i'm definitely very curious about there's a curious i'm curious about this entire scene like i'm like yeah i feel like this movie was definitely made for people of this era like the, like it's like you watch it like they'll watch it and it's like oh i know who this person is based off of yeah and he's talking about this and this was like an inside thing that this person and for outsiders for people who aren't in it's like oh i i don't know i see obi-wan kenobi (laughs) (laughs) and and i I see obi-wan kenobi talking to bruce wayne because christian bale's in there christian bale's he's the reporter that it's a it's kind of a frame story where like this guy he goes back to do a piece on the Brian Slade character and his the circumstances of his death. But in going back, you you go into like the a flashback and you see that the Christian Bale character was actually a huge fan of this music. Like he was go to the concerts and stuff. Ah, oh, kind of sounds a little bit Citizen Kane esque. It's a lot more entertaining than Citizen Kane. And the music is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, different era. I'm sure. I'm. There's no doubt in my mind. The music is way better here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we didn't talk about the year of 1998. Should we go over the year? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So this movie had a budget of nine million, and it only got 4.3 million at the box office. So it was not financially successful, but it has since become a cult following. Yes, there has absolutely. since been a cult following. Um, so, but the biggest movies of 1998 are number one. Do you want me to do domestic or worldwide? Because there's domestic a... man. Okay, you don't don't want to care about the rest of the world. I see how it is. <laughs> USA, USA. The box office for 1998. I've seen a lot of these movies. Oh, okay. Okay, here we go. Number one with. million dollars saving private ryan that was the number one oh (gasps) this is that year Mm -hmm. oh fuck number two was armageddon armageddon was actually number one worldwide because uh yeah it was a global event i guess (laughs) in that movie number three there's something about mary 
Okay. With Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz. Okay. Number four was A Bug's Life. Ooh, good, good classic. Okay. Number five, The Water Boy. <laughs> my, 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 my mama said the Mandula Amlagata. No, <laughs> I forgot how the quote goes, but. Uh, number number six, Doctor Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy one. Mm-hmm. Number Probably. seven, Rush Hour. Ooh, classic. Number eight, Deep Impact. Another worldwide event one. Yep, it, that one made 136, 140 million uh, domestically. Number nine, Godzilla. This is the Matthew Broderick Godzilla with Hank uh... Azaria and um, the Leon the Professional guy. I forgot mm-hmm. his name. And then number 10, Patch Adams. Oh, with Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Also coming out this year, Lethal Weapon 4, The Truman Show, Mulan, The Rugrats Movie, Shakespeare in Love, and <laughs> Blade. <laughs> Blade. What, what's the quote that you always say? Uh, uh, ice skating. Oh, some motherfuckers always meet. Some motherfuckers are always ice skating uphill. <laughs> I recently watched it and it's fantastic. It's so good. I it's... I can't believe I waited so long to watch that movie. Same. Well, I I did watch the. Well, my parents watched it. I couldn't get past the first five minutes because the blood rave. The... Yeah, yeah. I can't fuck with that. That was that was another scene that messed me up as a kid. We talk about <laughs> RoboCop messing me up. That that blood one didn't mess me up as much. But I remember watching it. Like, nope, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, Wild Ants also came out this year. Ooh. Oh, that came out the same year as, as A Bug's Life? Mm-hmm. I, I actually preferred Ants to I, Bug's Life. I actually did, too. I really, I, I'm not saying I dislike Bug's Life, but I preferred Ants. Um, there was just something cool about it. Uh, DreamWorks was really on a roll with that one. I liked it a lot. And there was like a war scene where you're getting... Yeah, where you're the termites versus getting... the ants. Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> Everything <that> dies. <laughs> There's the scene where the Sylvester Stallone ant loses his body and his head is still talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, or for the longest time as a kid, I imagined that his body was dug underneath. I didn't know that his head was a t- detached <laughs> until I saw it older. And now I was horrified. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Anyway. Uh, I remember that. I, I remember thinking that was really funny. Uh, <sighs> like the severed head talking. Like I'm, I'm what, eight years old or so. I was, I think it's funny. I, Jesus Christ, that's horrifying. Even as a kid, I knew that was fucked up. And I feel like I have way more of a sick, twisted humor than you. Maybe not. Maybe not. No. No, absolutely not. I'm tamed compared to you. If I see a severed head, I'm crying. You're like, hey, hey. Yeah. Mm -mm. Those were the big films from that year. But obviously Velvet Goldmine. That's not the crowd that Velvet Goldmine was going after. Velvet Goldmine was a was high art it was an artistic film that competed at Cannes, mm-hmm. right and yeah. i just want to name off some of the films that it competed against just Ooh. so I, I mean you know i don't think a lot of i don't recognize a lot of these movies uh i've never been big in fo- on following can i've always wanted to but you know, it's just like films... it's like man i wish i was smart enough for that <laughs> well well yes well it's three things Number one, I wish I was smart enough to understand some of these movies. Number two, I wish these films were entertaining. Some of them are just so fucking boring. And third times, I just forget about them. Um, yeah. But 
just so people understand, um, you know, just kind of what this film, you know, the the the, uh, the crowd that this film was hanging out with. So you've got films like April, The Celebration, Claire Dolan, Class Trip, Dance Me to My Song. Uh, these aren't ringing any. I have no idea what these movies are. Yeah. I'm not there smart is... enough for cans either. Yeah, same, man. Is it, it's a... con, isn't it? Con, yeah. I, I, can. Can or con? I, I don't it's, know. It's French, so it's got to be con, right? I, I thought it was in Italy for a while. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and then my friend Aiden had the <laughs> Nah, bro, they hold the event in France. I was like, why do they hold an Italian film festival in oh, France? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. All, all, the, all the people who are way more cinephile than I am are, like, shaking their heads right now. Like, <laughs> what a fucking idiot. Um, okay. But this one you you will recognize, and I'm sure you've seen it, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I recognize it, but okay. haven't seen it. By Terry Gillum. That's a, a popular Johnny Depp film. Basically, the drug film to end all drug films. It is a fucking nightmare. M- movie is weird. Uh, there was one called The Hole, which I have seen. I, I saw it back at, at UCI. Mm-hmm. Pretty good film. Like it. Then there's Life is Beautiful. Now, I feel like this is one of those films that people would recognize, but they can't remember. This is about the father and the son who gets sent to a concentration camp. Oh, yes. But I know in, this one. Yeah. But in order for the for the kid, for the father to keep the kid, the father lies to the kid, saying that they're playing a large, elaborate game, trying to oh. mask the awfulness of the concentration camp. Um, oh, that competed at, the, at Cannes as well. And... There's a lot more films, but I mean, I don't recognize a lot of them. But so that's the crowd that that's the crowd that Velvet Goldmine was in. You know, it's, uh, Velvet Goldmine wasn't concerned with Godzilla or Lethal Weapon or Rush Hour. You know, actually, Con uh, they did have Godzilla at Con. Well, they had that at at a uh, as like a screening, like a out of competition screening. Oh, it wasn't, um, yeah, it, it, they had a screening there because hey. You know, people want to watch this movie, so... But it wasn't, like, competing. So, imagine that, Godzilla competing at the Cannes Film well, Festival. Like, I could see, like, sh- like the 2017 Shin Godzilla competing, but not Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Yeah, well, I, to be fair, back then, nobody really knew how trash it was going to be, so... another, another I mean, I saw that... Independence Day. I knew it was going to be bad. Okay, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Another film that that screened there out of competition was Blues Brothers 2000 by John Landis. Oof. <laughs> yeah, so actually, I remember yeah. seeing that as a kid, and I liked that one. Yeah, yeah. but when you grow up, it's when you yeah. grow older, it's like, well, you know. But so that's the that's the that's the playing field that Velvet Goldmine was in. So that gives you an idea. If you if you've never heard of if you've never heard of Velvet Goldmine, that gives you an idea of you know what kind of movie this is. We're not dealing with uh, a RoboCop here. We're dealing with a uh, existential film about artists and the hardships of that time. But also a kind know. of like celebration of that time, as well. That is true. Yeah. So, Austin, are you pumped to watch this movie? I am so pumped to watch this movie. I'm gonna be after we watch it. I'll probably have the the soundtrack in my spotify rotations for weeks to come i'm i'm very curious i i don't know what to expect because <laughs> this is a film from con about the glam rock <laughs> about the glam rock setting of the 70s lgbtq story i'm like i don't know what i'm in for man i have no idea i 
I, I, she, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. All right, we will see you in a minute. It doesn't really matter much what a man does with his life. What matters is the legend that grows up around him. Brian Slade was the wildest rock star to come out of London. The biggest thing since sliced Beatles. But that wasn't enough. We set out to change the world. What happened? Who did it? And why? Next week is the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. One journalist is about to look into the mystery. I was trying to contact you about a story. From the moment Brian Slade stepped into our lives, nothing would ever be the same. He was, in the end, like nothing he appeared. Right after everything crashed, Brian seemed to get lost in a lie. Came someone else. Miramax Films invites you to throw away your expectations and take a magical trip back to the 70s. When the glam scene rocked London and the outrageous fashions, music, and behavior shocked the world. And we are back. We have just finished watching... Velvet Goldmine from 1998, written and directed by Todd Haynes. So, George, this is the first time you've seen this movie, right? Yes. Well, actually, I I don't know if I spoke about it on the first part, but I think I've seen this movie once before. What? But, 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 I fell asleep. <sighs> and I oh missed boy. most, if not all, the film. <laughs> because I'm, I, I can't even recall the film. Mm-hmm. But I think I saw it back at UCI. I'm sure. Th- I think there was a class when yes. we were watching Velvet Goldmine. Yes. And okay. I distinctly remember falling asleep. Wow. So what did you, what did you, what was your first impressions of the movie? I love the film. It's pretty great. And I'm so happy with the final result because I was expecting a completely different film. Mm-hmm. So even though I slept, through the film in school, I had heard about Velvet Goldmine, um, and I was in a way intimidated by it because people were saying that it was an art house film from like the independent art tour scene and cinema, you know, and the indie scene, mm-hmm. you know, Miramax, you know, and in a weird way, you kind of hear that and you're like, man, this could be fucking boring. <laughs> right? Like that's, there were so many movies from that, from that era that I just do not, or back in college, I didn't really appreciate. Now yeah. I'm growing a bit more onto them. I recently watched another film we watched back then was Stranger Than Paradise by Jim Jarmish. Jim Jarmish, and I hated. Yeah, I I hated Jim Jarmish back oh, in school. Oh damn! Okay, I hated him. I thought he was a douchebag. Um, <laughs> okay, but I was wrong. I he's awesome. I love his films. I think I was too much in the mindset of there has to be plot and there has to be like stakes and consequences. And, you know, like there has to be a counting, a, a ticking clock to a big explosion. Yeah. Um, you're like you still... expecting a Tarantino movie or something. The... Yeah. Well, you watch Reservoir Dogs, which was around in that era and it blew people's minds away. It blew mm-hmm. my mind away. So yeah. you're, you're unfairly comparing these films to Reservoir Dogs and stuff of the same vein. And yeah, completely. Of course, I'm going to be disappointed. Right. And 
stuff like Reservoir Dogs is what I grew up with. I I I was raised in that in those style of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so switching over to Stranger Than Paradise and Velvet Goldmine, you're a bit, you know, it's not the same roller coaster ride, right? It's very different. It's like going into Peter Pan expecting Space Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to our last episode. <laughs> yep. Go check, go listen to that last episode to get the reference. But basically, I hated Peter Pan because it was not Space Mountain. <laughs> um, and that's unfair to Velvet mm-hmm. Goldmine and Stranger Than Paradise. So now, knowing that this isn't a Reservoir Dogs, this isn't something that I would normally watch um, for multiple reasons, right? Uh, it's way too, way too much into the music scene. I'm stuff that I don't even know right like mm-hmm. this isn't my scene it's from an era of movies that i wasn't wholly interested in and watching it now fuck i really liked it yeah, i loved it dude is incredible like i forgot how much i love this movie like i know i love the music but then watched it again and i'm like jesus christ this is like so thoughtfully crafted you know yes. what i mean no no I, I i cannot wait to talk about the actual like yeah the film form. Did I think this is the movie that uh, I was most excited to do after watching it. You know, I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to talk about this movie. And then doing the research, I was like, holy shit. There is so much. There's so I much. Think I've never had I, this many tabs open on my Firefox browser in my life. I think what I like about it is that it, it's very similar to how I felt about Children of Men. Yes, I was going to say the, that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I I thought the like Children of Men is um it's my favorite film, uh but it's very similar to Velvet Goldmine in the sense that you could watch this as a straightforward film, like one time viewing, and and enjoy it, but the more you watch it, the more you're going to pick up on so many different things, and the film almost like invites you to like look into it deeper and stuff, and 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 that for me is the best type of movie, a movie where you could sit back and watch and enjoy for what it is but also like really critically look at it and just see how many how many we or how many uh uh red yarn dots you could you know like when, yeah, the, when yeah, a conspiracy yeah. theorist has like a, a theory and this they're is connected to red this, yarn. this is, but except this is all actually connected to stuff <laughs> yes <laughs> and this movie is so full of that and i love it i i love it uh, so we're gonna talk about the film and uh, we before we summarize it we also need a mention though normally this is the part of the episode where austin and i will say hey you guys should check this film out it's on amazon prime hulu netflix hbo max but finding this movie yeah finding this movie was really really difficult first of all really it's, fucking hard <laughs> it's not streaming legally anyway anywhere i i thought it was on sundance now like the the internet dude i got a i got a subscription dude, I, with them just oh my god <laughs> i did the same thing took my motherfuckers took my free week away from me i know i'm like you know what i won't be back you guys lied to me about velvet goldmine but yeah because you know, it was like stream now yeah and it's like where <laughs> bitch where <laughs> but i i eventually did find it thank god for libraries okay because i i googled velvet goldmine where to rent where to rent and this like uh i'll link it it's like this site that keeps track of all the libraries and what they have in stock 
and it showed me I could go to Santa Fe Springs and pick up Velvet Goldmine there, or I could go to the LA library and pick it up there. Santa Fe Springs is closer to me. So I called them up and I was like, I don't have a library card. Can I sign up and rent this movie on the same day? And the dude was like, sure. So come in, get the movie, and I put it in my DVD player within an hour and a half of that Google search. Dude, fucking libraries, man. Libraries. Who, and this poses such an interesting situation because this shouldn't happen nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe back in the day when Blockbuster was the thing, you know, because I'm sure you could have found this at a Blockbuster, but, you know, there's only a finite amount of movies there. So the the advent of the internet and streaming service, you'd think you'd be able to find anything, anything. Yeah. And the fact that, they no streaming service has a movie starring Christian Bale, Ewan McGregor, uh, fucking Tony uh, Jonathan Ryan's Myers. Tony Collette is insane. Jonathan Ryan's Myers. It's an, it's is it Ryan's or is it Reese? I don't know, man. It's fucking English. Jonathan Wright, Reese Myers, and Eddie Izzard. Look, man, English is my second language. That's my scapegoat. <laughs> okay, but well, I found I found a certain way to watch this movie. Let's put it that way. And I'm kind of I'm kind of upset because I'm like I would really like to give this movie some money. I'm, I would. I'm convinced I'm gonna I would too. I'm I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna buy the Blu-ray of this movie because I would like to have it and own it. Same. Um, but it wouldn't have gotten in time for yeah. uh, for how for our schedule. I'm mm-hmm. like I'm not gonna wait a month. We're not gonna postpone this episode. Yeah. So I had to find a certain way to watch it. <clears throat> yeah, you borrowed the- my DVD that I rented sure. from the Santa Fe Springs Library. Hey, shout out to them, man. Shout out to Santa shout, Fe Springs. Shout out to libraries in general. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you get a library card with the city of Los Angeles, you have access to Canopy, which is a streaming service that is free and has a shit ton of good movies. Basically, everything from A24 is there. So, hey, it's a free streaming service. There's a bunch of good stuff in there. So this is our shout out to the libraries and Canopy. Um, not sponsored by them, though. One day. It'd be nice maybe. if we were. Yeah. yeah but yeah man that's so that in itself is already a weird like what the fuck we can't yeah. find this movie yeah so i i know that, like we like to talk about these movies in depth and it helps if you've seen the movie when we talk about it but in case you don't you know you, you want to listen to the episode which i'm appreciative of we're both appreciative of we will try to summarize the story for you but i don't think I there's ever been a movie that I've wanted people to watch more than this one. I think I well, for me, it's Children of Men. But I think this is I think this movie was so unfair. I think this movie was ahead of its time. So ahead and of its I don't time. I don't think it got the respect it deserved. Absolutely it's, not. It, it did it's, not. it's getting it now. But I don't think mainstream audiences are going to give this a chance, which I think you should. It's so good. There's a, there's a chance that you may not like it, which there's hey, a fair enough. I, I mean, it is a strange movie. A lot, a lot of shit is happening, um, and you might feel a little bit intimidated, like I did. But coming from a perspective of someone who was intimidated, this isn't their kind of movie. I was like, I'm gonna give it a chance. This this is why we started the podcast, mm-hmm. right? To give movies that we normally wouldn't a chance to revisit them. And this is one of those. Just, this is why I love movies, man. Yeah. You never know what's going to hit. Something that you think is going to be a home run could turn out to be a dud. And something that you think is a dud could turn out to be a grand slam. And, and that's the beauty of films. Mm-hmm. So 
we're going to talk about why we love this. But first, let's give a brief summary of the film. Actually, I don't even know if we properly can summarize everything that happens in the film. We'll, we'll 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 do it. Well, it's you don't have to do every single thing. But yeah. like, all right. So the movie starts with an with a U with a UFO. The UFO drops off a baby. It's Oscar Wilde, like the the writer Oscar Wilde. And then it fast forwards to him growing up in school. And then it's like, okay, what do you want to be? I want to be a policeman. What do you want to be? I want to be a politician. And then it goes to Oscar Wilde, and he says, I want to be a pop idol. And then the teacher's like, what? And then and then it fast forwards again to some schoolboys beating up another kid whose name is Brian Ferry. And with the blood from his lips, he like looks himself in the mirror and uses it to be like lipstick. And somehow Brian Ferry has like this pendant that belonged to the child of Oscar Wilde. So he's like a kind of descended from Oscar Wilde in some way. Yeah, the aliens brought down when they brought down Oscar Wilde, they had a they had a green penchant, right? Yeah. And and that's <laughs> meant to symbolize something. Yeah. Uh, which is a whole thing too. Uh sorry. So that's like the first like 5 minutes of the movie and then it goes into like this 70s rock uh title sequence where you see all these kids running in the street and you 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 hear about like the glam rock scene and their patron saint, Brian Slade, uh, who's like a David Bowie esque character who's played by Jonathan Rhys Myers. And you see all these kids running to the street. One of them is Christian Bale, you know, Batman. His his character's name is Arthur Arthur Stewart, and he gets to the stage, and then uh, Brian Slade is about to perform one of his hit songs. And then he's assassinated. And then for the whole day, everyone thinks Brian Slade is dead. But then it comes out that the whole shooting was a hoax and he tricked everybody. And then you have the montage of them burning the albums and everything. And the kind of a summary of how his career spiraled and how he like went into hiding. And then it goes to like this quote that he had. Um, he says to, to camera, I knew I should have started. I knew we should start a sensation, gasp the rocket, and then it went out. And then, like, the film kind of burns, and it's revealed that it's kind of like a little uh, news reel that people are trying to put together in 1984, because this all happened in the 70s, for the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. And at this point, Arthur is now a reporter, and his boss tells him, hey, you remember Brian Slade and all that glam rock stuff. Why don't you go find out what happened to Brian Slade? So Arthur is like, all right, fine. Uh, and he goes around, interviews uh, Brian Slade's first manager. He interviews Brian Cecil, Slade's... Cecil, right? He, Cecil? I, think, I believe it's Cecil. Cecil. And he interviews um, his ex-wife, Mandy, who's played by Tony Collette. And you start to like kind of piece together the story of Brian Slade's up, upbringing and his... Uh, musical endeavors and the relationships he had and he was cecil was gay and he kind of like fell in love with brian slade it's implied but i'm not sure if it was ever reciprocated and then brian marries mandy 
but their relationship is kind of weird too. So that maybe he's bisexual, but he doesn't seem all he does seem interested in her at first, but then it goes away when he meets Kurt Wilde, who is like this Iggy Pop type character played by Ewan McGregor. And that's like the the big love story, I think. And it's weird kind of how you don't really see the sex scene between them. It's like done in secret. In the the media, Brian Slade talks openly about his bisexuality and how he's just as attracted to women to as he is to men, and how this kind of became co- the cool thing to do. How being bisexual, being gay, being gender fluid is like the cool thing to do. And then, you know, their relation the relationship between Kurt Wilde and Brian Slade kind of sours because Brian is like a big superstar now. And Kurt Wilde is still like this rebel, like his he's a rocker, he's on drugs and stuff. He doesn't he doesn't have his like act together, I say. He's not professional in the recording situation. And they have a fight, which is also off screen. And mm-hmm. Kurt ends up moving away. Brian Slade, he doesn't like playing the character that he's invented called Maxwell Demon anymore. And he decides to kill him off, and that's what happens to him. And as Arthur's like hearing the story and everything, he, you realize that Arthur was a huge fan of this movement. And when Brian Slade came out on TV, he also wanted to come out to his parents, but he never could and was eventually kicked out of the house for being gay. Then Arthur realizes uh, that Brian Slade didn't, didn't go into hiding. He changed his name to Tom Thomas... Stone, I think it's uh, yeah, Stone, Stone, Thomas Stone, and he like changed his identity to this to this uh, guy who's really into the president, who's supposed to be President Reagan, but it's but they not say Reynolds, Reynolds, but it's clearly it's like that. It's got to be Reagan, who's and he kind of looks like one of David Bowie's alter egos, the Thin White Duke, a little bit. Um, and then when Brian Slade figures this out, the news company he works for they're like no don't don't do that just talk about the the stone concert and arthur eventually confronts brian slade and then all of his people like take brian or tom tom stone away and arthur actually meets up with kurt wilde who was just at the the pub or whatever and he talks to him for a little bit and there it's revealed that arthur actually had sex with kurt wilde at one of like the farewell to glam concerts back in the day yeah. Um, and then the movie ends with the pendant. Kurt Wilde has it and he tries to give it to Arthur. But Arthur's like, I can't take this. Because Arthur is kind of like, the, the world of 1984 looks very dull and gray. And he's uh, he's no longer like outwardly bisexual or gay. He's like very like heteronormative cis male. We don't even know if he's, uh, if he's outed, if he's outed yeah. uh, in New York. Yeah. We, we I, they ask him like, oh, you're f-, when they give him the assignment. Oh, you know, you know about this stuff, you know. And it's like, what do you mean? What do I know about this? Yeah. They're like, oh, you're a resident Brit, you know. Yes. But he thought for a second that oh, they know that I, they must think I'm gay or something. Yeah. So he refuses the pendant, but Kurt Wilde gives it to him anyway through some kind of sleight of hand trick. And then the movie ends with one of uh, Brian Slade's hit songs on the radio as it fades to black. A lot of shit happens in this movie. A lot. And it's like, all told, like, from a 
different perspective. Some of the stuff that you see in the film is supposed to be representative of something else happening. It's not it's like told... a literal scene. You know what I mean? Well, most scene. I mean, it's told uh, out of order. Uh... It's told out of order and cer- like visually, some of the things you're looking at aren't actually happening the way that they're being presented. Well, this this film, it's funny because this film has a lot of artistic and ambiguous imagery mm-hmm. that almost helps. It almost helps when you take it literally and it helps you kind of understand the film. It's it's very strange. But when I when I was first watching the film, I'm like, wow, this is very there's a lot of stuff to take in. And something just clicked in my head where it's like, just take it literally. Don't <laughs> don't don't try to don't try to think about it too much. Right. Just just observe what's happening and just let it in. And I found myself understanding a lot more of it. It's funny, but by not paying attention, I found myself <laughs> understanding more of it. It, it's a, I was, I was never not paying attention, but I think there's so, there's so, so many symbols, so many uh, foreshadowing instances where you're just like, okay, I'm trying to reverse engineer this film in my head. The yeah. film guy in me is trying to figure out the tricks that Todd Haynes is doing. Don't mm. do that, because you're just gonna, you're just gonna put yourself in a corner and not enjoy the film as much. Just watch what's happening take it in and it does help to take things very literally especially the first time and Mm. like me you will find it a much better experience okay well i some stuff doesn't happen literally though you know no no some no some stuff doesn't but i think it definitely i mean there's some stuff there's i mean this is a very artistic film there are some things that are very ambiguous but i think for the most part this is a pretty straightforward film. That's what that's one of the things that surprised me. Cuz again, I was thinking, "Oh man, this is going to be one of those art house films where I don't know what the fuck is happening or what's happening is dull and boring." No. Everything looks and sounds cool. It moves cool. It it, it almost breathes cool in a weird way. I don't know how to describe <laughs> it's that. Just... It's it's very it's a cool movie. Yeah. And did you ever find yourself like wanting to to be Brian Slade? Were you like <laughs> envious of like his confidence? I found myself more envious of Kurt. Um, okay. There was uh, there's just the way Kirk was. It's almost like there's a scene where David Slade, you know, trying to get his music career off the ground, and mm. he's doing the acoustic guitar thing, you know, yeah, like a concert a... for hippies, and they yeah, hate and him. They're like calling they him all kinds of uh, like gay slurs and stuff because he's yeah. performing in a like a frock. Or like a dress or something. It's very. Yeah, he looks like a hippie. Like if you look, he looks like a hippie, but not like them. Yeah. Yeah. He's very like if you if you're familiar with David Bowie, there's an album called The Man Who Sold the World, and if you look at the cover art for that album, it's kind of like how Brian Slade is dressed at this moment in time. Well, and what's so funny is that he gets booed, and it obviously hurts his feelings, and that's when Kirk comes on. Right, I love that, and scene. it's almost like that. It's almost like the male gaze scene, mm-hmm. almost literally. Like it's, it's very much a male gaze scene. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but for gay people, because <laughs> because it's 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 funny because you know David Slade's walking around. He's with Mandy. He's like, man, they hate me, and he's all pouty. And Cecil's like, look, man, you gotta just you know you'll you find, gotta do th- yeah you'll yeah. you'll find your footing. And then Kirk comes on and. Damn, is he insane? He starts aggravating the audience. He, even McGregor, straight up gets naked on stage. You see yeah. his penis. Mm-hmm. Like, 
it's it's kind of like blurred. <laughs> I mean, not not intentionally. It's, not, it's just he's moving so fast. <laughs> that, and you can see his penis like moving from side to side. It's mm. very explicit. Yeah. Uh, you see his ass. They throw like a. They throw um. I think they throw like a Molotov at him. I don't think they throw a Molotov at. I think they throw their beer at him and it starts a fire. Yeah, and then okay, that that's... that becomes part of the performance. And he just he 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 just basks in it, and then he he grabs glitter and he starts pouring it on himself. He's like jerking off David... with it. Yeah, and Davis Lee's just watching this from afar. Brian Slade and I'm uh, uh, sorry, Brian Slade. I keep saying David Slade. <laughs> Brian Slade. Sorry about that. There's so many. There's. I keep thinking of Maxwell Demon and David Slade and Brian Slade. Brian, Brian Slade. Slade. David Bowie. Ziggy Stardust. There's so. <laughs> God. Damn. But Brian Slade. Um, it's just watching this from afar, and you, you're just like he's enamored with it. He he's enamored with Kirk, like from his ability to sing and perform and what he represents. And, and at that same moment, not be I thrown was off by by people booing him, people hating him. Yeah, and you can't help but but love Kurt in that moment. Yeah. You can't like I was enamored with him. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, he has a he has a level of bravado that I wish I had. Yeah, that's really cool. It it re- that's how I felt for a large part of it. Also, um, that song is an Iggy Pop song, but I think on that track, it's actually you and McGregor singing. Yeah, a lot. There's a lot of talent in this movie, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, the actors are bringing it. Fucking oh, yeah. Ewan McGregor is amazing. He's so he good. He does not. It's just everyone too. It it's amazing. I it's something. This movie's something, man. This movie is told out of order, right? This movie is chaotic and frenzied. There are things that are very dreamlike, very ambiguous, very surreal, um, and some things that are taken literally. I found that taking some of the imagery literally for my first viewing, my first official viewing, helps a lot. But it's this movie creates a vibe, right? And it's so engrossing that you're really in you're really invested in the story. You know, the story is pretty basic in a way. Uh, like I the don't actual... know if it's basic. I don't think that's the right it, word it, to use. Not not basic. It's very straightforward. The plot's very straightforward. It's it re- it's like a lot of these um, music biopics. Like it follows the same beats as Bohemian Rhapsody, as um. I don't think so because this movie, it's like you see all these things happening, but you're seeing it from the journalist's perspective, and the journalist lived through all these things. And these well, things matter to him, and we see how they affect him, how they well, change his his life. Well, what I mean is that I don't think any movie, other uh, musical biopic has ever done that before, as far as I know, as far as we know, there might be. We should ask Brandon because he would probably know. But I mean, this is this movie is a combination of a music biopic combined with Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a film about uh, Charles Foster Kane saying dying and his final word being rosebud and who's reporter, also supposed to be somebody else that's famous right like Link's... william randolph hurst yeah hurt. i believe hurt hurst i think so I media think media tycoon and it's basically this reporter's job to figure out what's rosebud and so he interviews a bunch of people and those people kind of tell a tell the story of charles foster came from their perspective and events that they've had with him 
This movie combines both of those things. And if anything, it combines the best elements of each of those films to make it, making it something unique. But the actual plot beats, they're pretty straightforward. Like, it's a story about a musician who ha- lives a crazy rock star life. He gets to the he starts from the bottom and he gets all the way to the top of the charts. Everyone loves him and then slowly drugs and infidelity begin to consume his life until it leads to his downward spiral. But is and, it is it infidelity that leads to the downward spiral? I mean, <sighs> is it the drugs or is is the drugs a result of something else? Well, that's what we're going to talk about, isn't it? Yeah. But I, that's but why that's, I'm like that, this movie is not straightforward. Well, why does why does he change his identity? Why does he become Tom Stone? Well, I, well, I have a I have a cynical uh, interpretation of that. I don't know I don't know where you're coming from. I have. Let's a, hear what you have, have to say first. Well, real quick, to, back to the point. The I think this movie reminded me a lot of Bohemian Rhapsody, and I was not crazy about that movie because I think it's. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of similarities between. Maxwell Demon and Freddie Mercury, right? Uh, and both of those, both of their uh, uh, sto- lives are chronicled in films. But one portrays it very straightforward, very like this is how he ran, and this is this is the cogs that ran inside his head. And one is saying it from a different perspective, and showing it in a completely different light. And I think it's way way more interesting. I think this is a film that the actual form makes the content much more interesting. And it makes it leaves it way more up to debate, which is where we disagree on these certain things. I, for example, talking about, uh, I was gonna say David Maxwell. <laughs> Jesus Christ! But you know, it's, you it's know. fine. It's fine because this movie is—it's not like a one-to-one biopic. You know what I mean? Like no. there's stuff that happens in David Bowie's life that also happened in Brian Slade's life, but then there's parts of it that differ greatly. Yes. And it's not Even, it's not through the fault of the film. Like I think that makes it tell a better story. It's a story that it, we can relate to. A lot of people seem to agree re- looking researching for the film. A lot of people tend to agree that David Bowie not giving not not blessing this film was ultimately a good thing. Yeah. That enabled the filmmakers to really detach themselves from reality and make something a lot more fantastical. Going to Maxwell Demon you talk about Brian why Slade? he took the uh, uh, Jesus Christ, Brian Slade. Okay, so for Slade. those, let's just explain it for the listeners if they're a little confused. Brian Slade is the singer; that's his name, right? And in his album, he creates. This is important. We should I should have mentioned this in the story, but he he creates this alternate persona called Maxwell Demon, which is a reference to. A Brian Eno band or something who's also another glam rocker, but it's also a reference to like some kind of science, something to do with science, Maxwell's demon. And this this character is a bisexual alien that comes to to the earth and it becomes a rock star and then ultimately gets killed by his own success in the album, in the, the concept album. That's a story being told on the the ballad of, of uh, Maxwell Demon. Going back to why Maxwell D De- or why Brian Slade changes his persona, why he adopts Maxwell Demon, I think it's a bit more cynical. Actually, um, I think it it's because he just wants to be famous. I think he wants to stand for something great while not 
wholly believing in what he's doing. That's my personal take on it. What did you, why did you, what do you think about Brian Slade? Well, I think uh, for a moment, the the Maxwell Demon character is kind of like an extension of himself, right? He, we, as creative people create things in their own image, even though they say that they don't, right? It's like nothing to do with, but every, every story we tell pulls from our personal life, right? Mm-hmm. So I think for a moment, he's actually being who he is, right? And he meets Kurt Wilde, and I think Kurt Wilde is like the big love of his life. So now he, he, he has this, this character, he's doing his thing, he's the happiest, he's, it's what he's always wanted to do, is be this like famous singer, and now he can't do that with Kurt because he's such like a wild card, he's so messed up on drugs. And because he can't have that, he can't love Kurt and do this at the same time, I think that's what, what makes it feel fake, because I was being myself, and I love Kurt, and I can't be with him, so now this all feels hollow. This feels wrong. And that's why he wants to get rid of the Maxwell Demon character. It's almost like he's snuffing out the gay out of him. You know what I mean? He's snuffing out the queerness in him. That's that's a pretty interesting take. Because David Bowie would go on record to say that he was a closeted heterosexual. We'll get to that he later. Would... Okay. It goes deeper inter- than that. That is interesting. So you think that Maxwell Demon is almost it's with him with him assassinating Maxwell Demon that he's snuffing out the gay in him? Yeah. Huh. Okay. See, that's an interesting take. I like that. I like that because I came at it more from the cynical perspective because I do believe that he loved Kirk. Mm-hmm. But there is something I think a bit insidious with much more insidious to Brian Slade than we get to see. Because well, I think we and I see think, the insidious side of him. I don't yeah, think we well, see like the what he actually wants, who he really is. Because like almost everything he does is like a performance. He's playing yes. up the 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 character. He's playing up the alienness. He's playing up all like the extravagance and everything. That's a part in the movie. Is his uh, manager wants him to the the way to be a star is to know how to behave like one, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of becoming fake. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things about glam. It's 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 a campy. It's it's, it's campy. It's, it's a performance. Be, it's bigger than life. It's it's kind of hollow. But at the same time, it is telling the truth. It's it's yes. funny. There's that quote, uh, which is a quote from Oscar Wilde: "Man is the least himself in his own form. Give him a mask, and he'll tell you the truth." Yeah, I think that's the perfect quote for this whole film. I think so because too. That was going to be my be- quote. Uh, I was going to pick something else. I, All right, we'll come up with something else. But I, I think that perfectly exemplifies the film because the film is very... Because a lot of critics at the time also said that this movie was shallow. Oh, the characters are... are uh, they don't have real character or motivations. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, the cinematography is beautiful. Uh, the cinematography is beautiful, but it's like a giant music video. And it's like... Well, that's what Todd Hayes was going for. He mm-hmm. was trying to add this glam coat on top of the film and yeah. kind of represent what glam is about this campiness of some of the hollowness but it's also telling the truth there is a truth to all of this yeah it's there you're just not seeing it yeah <laughs> i think what makes me a little concerned about brian slade why i come at it a bit more uh, nihilistic is that he it almost in a weird way like he moves 
from movement to movement in the pursuit of trying to be famous. I never thought about it from him him trying to get the gay out of him. But I, I mean, when when he looks at Kurt, right, you see someone who is the opposite of David Slade. And he was like, I want to be him. I want to be like him. I, there's two ways of reading that one that he loves what Kirk as a person stands for and he wants to have that in his life another it's what Kurt has I, I, he has I think he's he, envious of his his, yes. his like sense of self like he knows who he is you know what I but mean also the but also the effect that Kurt has on people like Brian you know he wants he wants that that magnetism mm-hmm. and as the film goes on we see kind of, we see Brian cut ties with people in order to get to that point. You know, yes. Cecil is a guy who sets up the music festival gig and Cecil's one of the first people he cuts out mm-hmm. when, when we meet, um, Eddie Izzard, uh, uh, David, Jerry divine. Brian, yeah. Jerry divine, Brian Slade's new manager. And how does, right? how does that happen though? Think about that. He challenges him to an arm wrestling match. Oh yeah. yeah, may, yeah. And he says, may the best man win. Implying that Cecil isn't a real man. Yeah. He's too he's too gay to be a real manager. Mm-hmm. But 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 Brian watches that happen. And he turns away. He 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 turns his back on Cecil. That's yeah. fucked up. It is. That's the first instance where you where you start seeing Brian for kind of the piece of shit he is. <laughs> cause then cause then afterwards you have Jack Ferry. Right, who is kind of like um, who's like the the originator? He's like the original glam rocker. Yeah, he and everybody and steals he, from him. <laughs> yes, and the exact same thing happens uh, in New Year's Eve, where Brian meets T- uh, Tony Collette's character Mandy. You see Jack Ferry walking down the stairs, and it is that kind of male gaze thing. He's watching these men almost in a male gaze format, but this time he—it's not—it's not romantic, or at least it's not implied that it's romantic with Jack Ferry, but it's much more insidious because Jack Ferry has the pendant, the mm-hmm. green pendant, the one—the the one that Oscar Wilde brought to Earth. Yeah, and it almost—that green pendant almost in a way represents glam rock or like something unique. it's like the it factor it's also yes. like a what, what else did you think it was i i thought it represented like the glam gay movement at the time like just like the, the, that's it's i think it's, it's more than gay yeah, right not, like it's, not even, it's like yeah, bisex, it's, it's like pansexual like queerness almost well i think i think what it meant what it might represent uh, i read this woman's kind of she didn't say this for the pendant but she says that Something that she said was really interesting. She said, it's better to think of this film as a bisexual theme, a film that uses non-binary sexuality as a metaphor for the boundless possibilities of youth. The promise of the future constrained only by the limits of one's own ambitions and appetites. And I think that's what the penchant really represents. You know, just the boundlessness that the that youth can bring to them, because it's always handed down to someone young, right? Mm-hmm. It was passed down from Oscar. Uh, somehow found its way to Jack Ferry, then found its way to well, stolen. <laughs> yeah, he by stole Brian it. Slade. Brian Slade stole it, and then Kirk got a hand a hold of it, and then it was passed down to Arthur. So it's almost like this uniqueness, this this sense of boundlessness that is being passed down from generation to generation, and Brian mm-hmm. steals it. And yeah. the, and actually, that was the scene that made me start taking the film a bit more literally. 
Because while it's happening, there's a sex scene. We, which we have to talk about the sex scenes. I, we need to talk about them because I have an important thing that I mm-hmm. need to say about them. Uh, Brian is having sex with his wife, Mandy. Before but they're married. Inter- like when yeah, they're, before they're when married. They, like met and like they're, the butterflies are flying and all that. Yeah. And intercut with that is David going up to Jack Ferry. And I believe like they kiss, right? Yeah. And and Jack Ferry, Jack Ferry has the pendant on him. And when he turns around, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Normally, as as like a traditional film watcher, right? Like like I am. Yeah. I'd watch this and I was like, wait, when does this scene take place? Does this take place before the sex scene or after the sex scene? Because it's not taking place during. When and it's yeah. like, don't worry about that. Don't don't think about that. Don't try to don't try to place this scene in a specific point in time. Just understand that he got close to he got close to Jack Ferry, and he took the pendant from him. And Jack realizes it, but he's not bothered by it but but he's also not it's he almost like allows it to look. happen he kind of allows it to happen but it's also not willingly it's not the same enthusiasm yeah. that kurt hands the pendant to to arthur mm-hmm. and that was the scene where i was like okay i gotta stop taking this film so goddamn literally like just take it for like just let it just engulf you yeah, that's that's kind of what you it's against your own advice from the beginning of this podcast well it's <laughs> my the advice was is is contradictory because there's a lot happening, and if you look into it a lot deeper, you can find a lot of stuff. But I think as a first-time viewing, just just let the film take over you and just accept what's happening. I think after like, that moment, too, like in like the chronology of Brian Slade's career, that's when he starts like amping up the the glam and like the yes the, the queerness of it. And that's the second instance of David or Brian, Jesus Christ, Brian. Yeah, he also like. Uh, when uh, Cecil is talking about his childhood, there's this scene where he's like making out with the girl and she's like, what are you, Amad or Araka? And he's he's like, I'm 6'1 and blah, blah, blah. And he steals her fucking, her uh, mirror, her makeup mirror. Mm. Do you notice that? I, I think I might have. I can't remember <laughs> right now. He steals it. And then right after that, he steals a pocket watch from a boy after oh, having yeah, sex yeah, with yeah. him. Oh, okay. I, I got that. I was like, was that was that kid in bed? Was that one of the kids passing yes. by in front of him? It was the one okay. with the pocket watch. Okay, it was okay because I couldn't catch the uniform because mm-hmm. his like his trousers were down. So I was like, wait, is that the kid that just passed by him? How yes. the fuck was he so quick? <laughs> well, no, I think but yeah, he. You got to remember that um, homosexual, uh, like gay sex, was not legal in England until 1967 meaning you could go to jail for having sex with someone of your same gender which damn so you have to like be a little what do you call it um stealthy little sneaky with having sex with another man yeah which is wild because because if you really think about it let's say let's say you're a gay dude right Mm -hmm. and you're in england at this time and have and being caught in bed with another man could get you thrown in the jail right yeah but like look you want to fuck like like you you want to do what you want to do right Mm -hmm. so if you find a man right you're literally you can't go up and say hey do you want to fuck you can't do that you you have to like really (laughs) you have to really be careful there's like a code it's you actually see it in the movie uh the remember when cecil first finds the when he first finds brian slade 
Yes, they have the the, club. the the guys he was sitting with were talking. Their their uh, dialogue was subtitled, even though it sounded like they're speaking English. Mm-hmm. It's called Polari slang, which is like a the way that gay men in uh, England used to talk talk to each other. And I was like, I was looking into it, and there's one thing that Brian Slade says when he comes out as bisexual. He's like, rock and roll is a prostitute. It should be uh, tarted up and performed. <laughs> the music is the mask, and me and my chiffon and taff, well, Varda the message. Do you know what that means? I had no idea what that means. <laughs> I, I'm actually glad you brought that up, because I had no fucking so, clue so what that I meant. I kept looking up, what is Varda? And I pull up a Wikipedia article talking about some, like, radio shit. And I'm like, I don't think that's what it was. But then I found this other one talking about Polari slang, and Varda, Varda means to see. And there's actually this live journal user, remember live journal, whose username was Varda the message. And for an entire year, they did like a scene by scene trivia thing for Velvet Goldmine. It's incredible. What the fuck? Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. And the the Varda thing is also something that David Bowie would say in the uh, Melody Maker interview where he came out as gay, which nobody, nobody in the rock scene had ever done before. But we can get into Come out as gay. yeah, we can get into that later. It's it is wild how deep this film goes, not just with music and you know David Bowie's career, but also just gay culture in general. Because mm-hmm. I I picked up none of that. Yeah, like like I I got into like the camp and the designs and stuff like that, but like that specific line threw me off because like I have no idea mm-hmm. what that means, and I kept rewinding it. Me too. Because I was like, what is, what is this? What is he saying? Because, right, like, I would do that with the Oscar Wilde quotes, you know? It's mm. like, an artist doesn't put any, could create a beautiful thing, but not put anything of themselves. I kept rewinding. I'm like, what the hell is he saying? What does that mean? And I had to read what a picture of Dorian Gray was because I never read the book. Oh, I love that book. Oh, we can talk about all that stuff. It sounds it, awesome. It's I so want to be Dorian Gray. <laughs> well, Dorian Gray is kind of like Brian Slade. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so what you were saying about, like, having to like navigate this world where your kind of love is illegal. You have to Hell be sneaky. Yeah. You have to have some kind of subtle cues and stuff. And that was all normal, right? Or that was normal for, for gay culture until, mm-hmm. you know, it's implied that until um, Brian Slade comes out and says, I'm bisexual, then it became kind of like a cool thing to There was to even a, a news documentary or a news report on it, which happens at the beginning of the film where they're interviewing Kurt Wilde mm-hmm. and he's like, um, he's saying these things like, um, uh, he says like, uh, but you can't fake being bisexual or you can't fake yeah. being gay or something about, about faking it and stuff like yeah. that. That's, it's becoming way more. Oh, it will. The whole premise of it is just how bisexuality is becoming a mainstream thing that mm-hmm. you even, they're just going around people and people are even carrying the, the cherry. Yeah. Insignia or I, not. The, I the think insignia. It's, I know, like little cherries, like uh, I think Arthur, his his character has them on his shirt, but he doesn't show his parents. He yeah. hides it. And it's, mm-hmm. it takes place after the the whole interview where uh, Brian Slade comes out. Even like maybe people wanted to be popular, right? So they'll like say that they're bisexual, but 
definitely some people who are hiding all this time finally feel like I can be myself now. It's a very empowering scene when he walks out with his like cherries on his shirt and everything. He's like smiling. I think that's the first time you see Arthur smile. Well, it's empowering. It's also kind of concerning. Why do you um, say that? Because when he when he sees the group, uh, when he see when he stares over to that group, right? The group yeah. of kids that also have the cherries and they just stare at him. I think it's because like, they don't believe him. You know, they, he doesn't look gay enough or something. Yeah. That was that's the concerning part. It was like it's still it's very much like a faux thing or it's like a popular thing where it's like, yeah, no, this cherry doesn't mean shit. Like, we don't trust you. Like, we don't think or, you're it. Or and I felt what bad. If, what if they're the ones that are like also what if they're the ones that are like pretending? Oh, they're pretending and they see they see Arthur and it's like, oh, he's a real gay guy. Like, we don't fuck with I him. I don't know. Yeah, either way. That, that, it, it, that's the, there's a lot of ways to read. Even There's a lot of ways to read that one fucking scene. Mm-hmm. It's both empowering. It's also fucking depressing. And it's just like, yeah, you're you're happy for you're happy for the guy. You're happy for Arthur. But he doesn't get the catharsis that would come from it, mm-hmm. where he would be accepted into the yeah. group and hey. Not immediately, right? <laughs> that doesn't happen until later in the film when he becomes... Like a roadie uh, for uh, the Flaming Creatures band. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where he really embraces it. And that's when, that's when it feels good. Oh. He, he, Christian Bale has that one line. This might be my quote where he's he's talking about the eyeliner. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, <laughs> we can do oh, the, fuck. What is it? I got I to gotta find it. It's, uh, I quit moving about. I'm doing the eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Scene. Oh, I love that too. Uh, and but there, but even then, the film maintains this bleakness. Mm-hmm. This because um, oh, I think the, the way word? that they filmed 1984 compared to the 70s is very intentional. 1984 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It looks like a drab. <laughs> oh yeah. Even when Arthur is like openly gay, like he's openly out, mm-hmm. there's still a bleakness. To some of those scenes like the one where he's doing his eyeliner is great it's fantastic but then when he's backstage at the death of glam and he's just like a he he, he just stands out you know but he's just having so much fun and the one guy tells him to like relax yeah it's Dude, like this bleakness that's that happened to permeated me throughout the oh it did yeah i remember i was at a oh, nine inch man. nails concert i think it was one of the first concerts i ever went to by myself and i was like in it they were playing head like a hole and i was like fuck yeah i love this song and then there's like a couple next to me that was like dude calm down and i'm like oh oops that bugs the shit out of me if they're not if you're not bothering them like they that scene made me really angry and it really depressed me as well because i think why are you killing my vibe like am yeah. i hurting you i think am part I of getting... it was is he's supposed to be working you know <laughs> like he's part guess, of the, but he... the, the stage crew or something <sighs> i don't know I don't, it's, it's kind of depressing. I mean, I understand it when it's like really, you know, like when it's disruptive, but there is this like just constant sense of melancholy, you know, like it's not even that big, totally depressing, but just, just seeing someone go from like a 10, just really happy and excited and fucking pumped. Yeah. I love that song too. 20th century boy. The soundtrack is great shit i feel like we've lost we've we keep going down these rabbit holes yeah that's the thing like this movie is is referential to a lot of different things it hits you in different moments it's it's kind of like david bowie he's he in his music he's always talking about things that inspired him 
And in turn, like people who are into David Bowie are like, what, what's he singing about? I got to look that up, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think that's what Todd Haynes, uh, the director of this film tried to do with this one is to like kind of introduce a lot of ideas and illusions and you make the audience go like, Hey, isn't that something? Should I, am I missing something? And you look it up and you find out about Nietzsche, you find out about Oscar Wilde, you find out about Lou Reed and all these, all these things. It's again, it's every, every aspect of this film has is referencing something of something about something. And it's like, I read this quote, um, let me let me quote let me but viewed from deep into the 21st century velvet goldmine looks increasingly like one of the great overambitious experimental cult films of indie auteur cinema ruffling on the culture connections between david bowie iggy pop oscar wilde citizen kane and queer theory haynes fashioned a knowingly counterfactual chronicle of the glam rock boom in early 1970s london and holy shit that's a lot mm-hmm Referencing David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Oscar Wilde, Citizen King, queer, queer cinema, queer theory, during the glam rock era of the nineteen seventy of nineteen seventies London, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of shit to reference, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and that's what makes this film so great. It's because out of all of that, I really on, only understand one thing: Citizen Kane. <laughs> like of all those things, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Oscar Wilde, oh, never God. listened to David Bowie. Uh, album Iggy Pop. I've listened to one song. Oscar Wilde. I don't know who the fuck that is. Jesus or I Christ. Heard about him. Queer Theory. I've never looked into it. Nineteen seventies American. Yeah, sure. London. Hell no. And yet I still really like this movie. Well, a, a, a lot of stuff went over my head, but mm-hmm. there is this like need to like watch what happened. Like what happened with this? Yeah. And the deeper the rabbit hole goes. It wasn't until I was doing research when I saw that. Tommy Stone. We we said Thomas, but it's Tommy Stone. Mm-hmm. Actually, was based off of the persona that David Bowie created. Yeah, the, was uh, it for, the thin, for the eighties, right? Was it the Thin White Duke, or was it another one? It's like the Let Let's Dance David Bowie. Yeah, uh, so as like, Bowie during the ser- oh Serious Moonlight tour. Ah, okay. it was, that's when he donned it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an easy visual cue to spot for David Bowie fans. Stone is clearly a callback to Bowie's serious moonlight persona so in the 1980s. Did you catch that? Did you think that he was going to be Brian Slade? I I caught it when Arthur caught it. <laughs> <laughs> when like I caught it right when like when Arthur figures it out. I was mm-hmm. like, "You son of a bitch! Yeah. You did it." People were confused about how there's like a zoom in on the the report the his production uh, or press person Shannon. It zooms in on her and it zooms in on Christian Bale. So it's like he recognizes her, but people are like, "How could he recognize her from the stories?" But like you forget that this dude was obsessed with Brian Slade. He probably knew the press people, just like David Bowie fans know Shannon is supposed to be somebody in David Bowie's career. Like she represents somebody. And they identified that. Well, a lot of the people in this film are casted or were cast based on how on based on the a role that David Bowie had. Yeah. And, you know, um, shall we talk about the, the real life stuff, the real life parallels and everything? Or do you want to? We, we can keep talking about the film. OK, we can, talk, we can keep talking about the film because um, well, well, I'll hold off on that on the real life parallels for a sec. OK, um, but like even if you don't understand all the things like I didn't understand a lot of the things I'm I said before, I'm like a six or seven david bowie fan i think i'm actually an eight or nine because i i started listening to a bunch of music 
uh, after watching the movie, I'm like, man, I looked at the This Is David Bowie on Spotify, and I'm like, dude, I love most of these songs, and I've heard them all before. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think I said I was like a two or three a David Bowie fan. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm more of a fan now after this. But yeah. again, my my knowledge compared to yours is super minimal. And that, that I think that's that's maybe what I was trying to get at earlier. As someone who who has as much knowledge as I do about all this stuff, which is nil, um, you'd be intimidated. And here I am. I'm trying to discern all these facts. What's happening? Like, what does this mean? <laughs> who is David Bowie? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Yeah. Just enjoy the film for what it is. Just take it literally the first time. Just just take what it is, what's happening, and you're still going to get an engaging film because it's presented very interesting. There is this mystery. What happened to Brian Slade? Earlier in the um in the pod in the episode, I was talking about how this is a mix of music biopics and Citizen Kane. But it takes the best part of those and it mixes it into one. The reason being is I feel like a lot of music biopics Number one, sanitize the story of yes. their protagonist. Yes, oh my god. Which I think god. is bullshit. Freddie Mercury... Was gay. Fucked a lot of dudes. Okay? And, they, and he oh, did a bunch of drugs. My god, I can't believe that they did that to the movie. I'm like, wait, there's no sex scene? Are you serious? Yeah. It's it's insane. Um, The Rocket Man did it a little bit better by being R-rated. But these guys did not live heteronormative lifestyles you know yeah these dudes were rock stars these were some of the powerful people at that time so they did some wild shit man (laughs) this story does not sanitize it and it also does another thing that i like it's not inherently about david bowie yeah because a lot of these films will say this is what made that person tick this is what you know i think in this movie you're not really like shown that you don't really see his perspective it's all stories from people around him pe- from people that he might not like who might not yeah. want to tell like the best version of him who probably have a biased opinion on it i mean mandy i mean yeah she has a right to be upset at him it's that How line you know that, that, every- that cecil has like when you uh there's bound to be stories of contrary opinion and with mandy you'll find both <laughs> <laughs> excesses of both it's, and that oh. And then we then we're introduced to Mandy, and I was like, that made way more sense. <laughs> that quote made made way more sense after seeing her. But they, they're too much. I think these films are too uh, biopics are just very sanitized, very like this is what made this person tick, and this is why this person is great. This movie's not interested in that. Saying this is the dude, loosely based on this other dude, and this is kind of what they did. Who also created kind of, a fake persona, like like the real dude did. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie about a dude about another dude dressed as another dude who dresses up at a lizard at one point. That's this movie. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't neatly put everything in a nice little bow where you're like, oh, I understand David Bowie now. Yeah. Austin and I saw the same film. We we don't entirely agree on where the dude's coming from. And that to me is way more important and way more artistically resonant than Something that this says, oh, well, this is what made this person tick. You know what I mean? And what's also great is this movie takes the Citizen Kane approach where it tells a story non-linearly. It jumps all over the place. Sometimes switching from the past to the present instantly. Mm-hmm. And what that does, it's it creates little vignettes. It organizes the film in nice little tidy sections. You know, the Mandy section, the Cecil section. But what it also does, it creates this ultimate mystery. You're seeing the yeah. story from different perspectives, from different times. 
And you have to work to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. But you're seeing how quickly Brian is changing what he's doing from from different points in time and who's interacting with. How he treats Mandy in a certain cut in a certain flashback isn't the same way he treats her in the next scene. Mm -hmm. And when you put those scenes together, you realize you get the idea that he's changing. Mm -hmm. And it creates this ultimate mystery as to what happened. Why did he what happened? What happened to him? Why did he change this way? What was the end goal? And the film slowly reveals all of that. Whereas mm-hmm. if it were told linearly, I don't think it'd have the same magic. Yeah, it wouldn't. And that's not how people tell stories. People don't tell stories linearly, you know? People no, tell stories no, it... based off what they remember at first. I'm like, oh, wait, I got to fill you in on this part. Oh, I forgot about something. You know, it, it goes back and forth. And also the, the character, Arthur, he remembers most of this stuff. He's just acting like he doesn't. Like, I love how his face changes when people mention Kurt Wilde. He kind of like looks away. Like, mm-hmm. I know all about Kurt Wilde. When Mandy, when he asks Mandy, when was the last time you saw Brian Slade? She was like, oh, at some concert, Kurt was performing. He knows what concert. And and that's actually, and that's another thing that I like about this movie. Because when you make the film about, you know, a big popular artist or, you know, a popular person... I mean, there's only so much you can do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, unless they're really open and honest, which a lot of pe- these people are not, right? Mm-hmm. They, it's just, they're not open. They're not completely open and honest. I mean, you know, they, they're not going to talk about all the negative shit that they went through a mm-hmm. lot of the times. This film is not framed around Brian Slade. Slade's perspective. He's not the main character. He's not the protagonist. Arthur is. Yeah. And that's what really helps me enjoy the film a lot because I'm seeing this from Arthur's perspective and I'm seeing what he's going through and it just grounds the film so much. And the scene where um, where uh, Maxwell Demon comes out essentially as by he imagines him saying to his friend, that's me, that's yeah. me. That's that's the character you're following. Mm-hmm. Uh, bloke at the front. I'm Brian. Why the makeup? Why? Because rock and roll is a prostitute. It should be tarted up, performed. The music is the mask, while I am my chiffon and tap. Well, part of the message. What about your fans? Aren't they likely to get the? Uh... The wrong impression? And which wrong impression is that? Well, you're a blinking fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, sir, and no. It doesn't concern me in the least. I should think that if people were to get the wrong impression of me, the one to which you so eloquently referred, it wouldn't be the wrong impression in the slightest. That is me! That's me, that! That! That's me! I mean, everybody knows most people are bisexual. Any more questions? It, it does that even better than Citizen Kane. Yeah. Because in Citizen Kane, it's just a reporter. The reporter's not a character. Mm-hmm. He's, he has he's no a relationship for to the, the Citizen Kane character. He has a job, and that's what he's doing. He is a vehicle for the audience, which, hey, great. If it worked back, then cool. But now, but, but with this film, yeah. they're like, no. This story is about let's, David Let's Sl- take Citizen Kane, glam it up, and take it to the next level. And let's... Let's not really focus too much on the subject, Charles Foster Kane or David Slade. They're important. 
But this Brian film Slate. is about Arthur. Or, ah, sorry, Brian. <laughs> it's God, okay. It's, it's kind of funny. These names. <laughs> Brian Slate. It's like the movie. Brian Slate is a big important important character. He is where the entire plot revolves around. The plot details and the beats. But the story is about Arthur yeah. and kind of what Brian Slade means to him. Yes, exactly. That's and what I said earlier. That's the thing. He, Arthur was not the only one. And mm-hmm. that's why people resonated with David Bowie and Brian Slade is that it made them feel like they were not alone, mm-hmm. that they had they, they that they were just one person in an entire group of people that felt the exact same way. Mm-hmm. This is about what an what to me it's about what an artist or what a public figure can do to the people. It's yes. what they stand for, what they mean. And I mean there's a you could break down this film into you could even just talk about the fandom. I don't know I don't know like I don't think it's like a complete picture of fandom, but it is specific to someone like Arthur who is not straight you know he's he might he's probably gay maybe he's bisexual pansexual he's not straight you know and seeing somebody come out on tv the same tv that their parents are watching you know come out publicly and have that be celebrated made him feel like he's not alone i think you said that and that that same thing kind of happened in real life because in 1972 in an interview with Melody Maker, David Bowie says, I'm gay. And then I think that moment in history made a lot of other gay people who might not be, uh, who or might be in like in the closet or hiding their sexuality. It made them feel like they, it was okay for them to not be straight. It's really interesting right? because these public, these public statements are a lot more important than we may realize. So important. You know, I mean, did you know this that is, this is... Elton John didn't come out until 1976? Oh, I had no idea. I, I think um, he was... Uh, David Bowie was the first one to, to really come out and say it. And then what happened? And then he, he kills off the Ziggy Stardust character in 1974, I think? 1973. July of 1973. He says to the, a live audience, I love... This has been one of the greatest tours of the night. Paraphrasing. But this is going to be a very memorable moment because it's the last time we're ever going to perform. And you hear the crowd just like go crazy. And then they sing, then he does the rock and roll suicide, which is like the closing song on the Ziggy Stardust album. And then a fan just like runs up to the stage and it's almost like they're saying, please don't go before they're like hauled off by security. Mm-hmm. So he, he, and then in 1976, he says that he's bisexual and he had some like choice words about Elton John at, at somewhere around this time. He has a, an interview with the Rolling Stone and he calls Elton John rock and rolls resident fruit or something. I couldn't find the actual article. I just have Elton John's um, take on it because they were friends. They would go to gay clubs and stuff, but then all of a sudden that after that, they kind of didn't talk anymore. And he says to Rolling Stone, uh, oh, he called me rock and roll's token queen. That's what he says. <laughs> and he doesn't really talk about his sexuality being as different. In 1983, he has another interview with, uh, yes, it's with the Rolling Stone, 1983. This is around like the less, let's dance period. And he says, 
coming out as bisexual was one of the greatest moments. One of the moments I regret the most. I was ex- Who said that? David Bowie. Oh, shit. Um, he was... <laughs> I was so young then. I was experimenting. The biggest mistake I ever made, he said one night after a couple of cans of Foster's Lager, was telling the Melody Maker writer that I was bisexual. Christ, I was so young then. I was experimenting. And the, it's weird. I don't know if it's on purpose, but the article is called David Bowie, Straight Time. <laughs> he did that shit on purpose. <laughs> God damn it. So Yeah, well, that, that goes back to the whole, you know, I'm a closeted heterosexual. It's like, come on, bro. Well, you, well we, we don't know, right? Like, not for sure. We know that he's had sex. Well, we don't really know, but people have said... Like there's a woman who was with, um, who'd be invited to threesomes with Mick Jagger and David Bowie, but she said that at some point she just sat and watched them have sex. <laughs> yeah, that was a long rumor. That's the thing. This movie, there's a lot of stuff. Where, this movie is kind of a biopic, but it's also loosely. Yeah. Like there's only so much we can't take. There's a lot of references to David Bowie, but in the end of the mm-hmm. day, this isn't the official David Bowie. Right, and there's a lot of references to to other artists too like lou reed lou reed um he was his um his awful um what his parents did to him like apparently according to him he was given electro shock therapy you know where they fry your brain to get the homosexual out of him and then after he died his sister denies that the, the parents ever did that to him and they weren't homophobes but why would he say that you know i don't know and uh the Brian, the Jack Ferry character, right? All these characters in the movie have like real life counterparts, right? Yeah. Some of them are a mix of, of other people. He with... was, Jack Ferry was based off of Little Richard? Yes. Because early in Little Richard's life, he was gay. He, he said he's gay, he always has been. And then it wasn't until later where he became like a born again Christian and said how Jesus helped him, you know, pray the gay away. But if you look back, you can see that he did the glitter thing way before anybody else, and they all stole it mm-hmm. from him. <laughs> well, and in the film, Jack Ferry's the guy who does it. Yeah. Jack Ferry's the guy who who does it. He's the first one. He When he retires, or he's, it's the death of Glam, Glam, a.k.a. Glitter. Yeah, there's a history that's that's being told about how society treats non-straight people you know it, it presses them down it like oscar wilde do you know what happened to oscar wilde no what happened? he went to jail for being gay oh i did not yeah, i didn't know that about imprisoned <laughs> i only knew that he read he wrote one book picture of dorian gray and that it was hated because of the the story that it was telling and that it was set in london which is like of all places london mm-hmm. so london hates the gays <laughs> Jesus. yeah it, apparently but, yeah, and if you look at David Bowie's early stuff, like the the more like uh, queer stuff, his um, Ziggy Stardust persona, like the songs that he wrote, like you could interpret it as like a like gay anthems. Have you heard the song "Oh You Pretty Things"? Mm-mm, no. Well, for some people, they consider it a gay anthem. The lyrics are very like, what what is this really about? You know what I mean? And I went over like his like the. In uh, England, there was a show called Top of the Pops, which was like, you know, back in the day, like MTV's TRL <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, and David Bowie made a few appearances on there. 
And one of his songs on the Hunky Dory album was called Oh You Pretty Things. And I was looking to see if he ever performed that. And I could only find like this cover version. All right, so keep keep all that in mind that this is considered by some to be a, a gay anthem. Let me show you how this song was, was performed. Oh, you pretty things. Don't you know you're driving your mamas and papas insane? Gotta make way for the homo superior. Uh, <laughs> so like I, so I don't. This is a David Bowie. This song, is a David but, Bowie song. But it's a this is a cover by Peter Noon. Noon. Yeah, that's hilarious. So what? What do you like? I don't know what decisions they make back in the seventies. You know, a lot of this stuff is like gone from the archive. So to me, like the the narrative that I construct from it is like they didn't want anyone thinking the song was gay. So they have a they have a, a very handsome hetero guy being being approached approached by a bunch of women kissing him on the on, on his uh, cheeks. Yeah, and they fine as fuck too. So like, <laughs> so it's, it's like we they don't want like these big corporations. They don't want this out there. You know, they don't want homosexuality represented in any way. Well, that even continues well, today. Oh yeah, uh, I think uh, I think the film kind of takes that takes that message and it says they want to profit off of it the the, the men in suits come in in particularly two spots in the film mm-hmm. when Cecil is fired right and um Brian's new manager right comes in and that's when he does the arm wrestling thing and he's like it's almost like he's performing he's showing off his masculinity and yeah. these men in the suits bland as fuck they're like very pleased they're like yeah get Cecil out of here get this motherfucker out of here like we need we need we want Brian Slade for ourselves mm-hmm. you know they don't approve of his lifestyle but they're like we don't give a fuck we're gonna make money off of him remember when they're convincing the Iggy Pop I mean fucking Kurt, Kurt Wilde <laughs> when they're convincing Kurt Wilde to go um, to to go and record music with Brian uh, Brian has those heart has that heart sign it has yeah. those hearts on his on his eyes uh, what's his name? Um, Eddie Izzard has the the dollar yeah. signs. Yep, that's what that's what it is. Yeah, he's just commercialized. He's just commercial. They're just making a profit off of David, uh, or Brian. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> and I mean, the second scene happens when they're kind of like uh, in that circus tent kind of area, yes. surrounded by all the men, and then Kurt and and Brian get up on in the middle and start kissing. Mm. They they don't care. Because they just want to make money off of it. That's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. They were profit. They were profiting off the glam rock. Like even his responses rock. to the reporters and stuff. They was all planned. Like it was all like, okay, ask this question and you respond in this way. That's why you it see like staged. the title cards. Yeah. So you that say it was staged. That makes me feel like that's not actually happening. Like literally. Like it's just yeah. a rep- visual representation of what well, happened. It's, well, it, it's a visual. It's a. It's clearly not literally happening. Yeah. But and see, this is what I mean. It's they're not in a circus tent. Yeah, literally, it's, it's like a quote by... media circus. Yes, mm, my I think my favorite scene is the babies on fire scene, where you have Brian Slade sing a song, and then Kurt Wilde comes out, and everyone's like, "Yeah, they're doing songs together." And at this, and like he does, he simulates oh. fellatio on the guitar, yeah. which is something that David Bowie did. 
Whit- I saw a picture Bronson, of that. <laughs> his guitarist, who's also kind of based off of the uh, Kurt Wilde character. I saw that. Yeah. I, I thought that was hilarious because I was like, wait, did David Bowie do this? And I was like, David mm-hmm. Bowie sucking guitar. Yeah. And it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. there it is. So <laughs> I guess. And that so like they're that moment for them was taking pictures of people talked about it, it made them famous it was a, like a Ooh, look at how cool they are you know mm-hmm. but kurt wilde or not kurt wilde arthur being like turned on by this is like a shameful thing you know what I mean? and, Which... and both of those moments happen at the same time but even even with kurt and brian it's kind of a shameful thing that them being together they can't like have sex in the or it's an orgy they can't have sex together there they have to go off into their own separate room that leads into my my favorite scene but also the one that broke me the most well i have two favorite scenes um one being when arthur gets caught by his father masturbating to the picture of um brian slade Mm -hmm. and that's not my favorite scene i mean that whole scene everything that's happening there is chaotic and frenetic and it's it's really well made um, but my, my favorite scene is after that happens, Arthur gets, after Arthur gets caught, he leaves, right? He gets on a bus and he leaves and his mom shows up just as the bus leaves and you kind of see her like waddling mm-hmm. over to the bus stop and like, she just waves goodbye. And that broke me so much. Yeah. That scene like really upset me mm-hmm. and it just, cause I've, I've never felt that. Right. My parents have always been really supportive of me. Mm-hmm. But that shit has happened to real people. Mm-hmm. It continues it to like, happen today. And it just like upset me so much because like the dad is just, he doesn't, he, it's like, he's just, I, he's just, he's being an asshole. And the mom, she's, she, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't want to like say stop, but she, she also doesn't like her son being yelled at like that. So or, being beaten too. His nose is Yeah. Bloody. She loves her son so much that she just she just wants everything to be fine. She just and because her husband is being an asshole, she can't outwardly like come in and protect her son. It see the it's a small moment, but when she like runs over to the the, the bus stop and she like waves, I I started crying. Mm-hmm. What's also happening in that scene is he's remembering this as Mandy's telling him the story of like when she knew that she lost um, Brian Slade. She says, it's funny how beautiful people look when they're walking out the door. So she's like in her moment of like watching um, Kurt Wilde leave Brian and seeing how hurt he is. And then she's also hurt by Brian because she, she's he's left her. Yeah. But and at the same time, Arthur's thinking about when he left and kind of how his mother when he's getting on the train. Yeah. And there's like this this movie has almost wall to wall wall to wall soundtrack running through the entire mm-hmm. film almost this is the one moment where everything all the sound is gone you don't get any ambience none, no music nothing you don't hear the bus you know mm-hmm. the you don't hear the engine the gas being burned and the car moving you don't hear any of that it's all silence and it's funny when you have water wall sound and then the moment that all that sound is gone, it hits you even harder. So it mm-hmm. takes that emotional scene and it, it's like someone punched you really hard and then they hit you in the groin. You just, <laughs> you're like, oh, fuck, this hurts so much. Yeah. 
that was it's funny because like a lot of reviews a lot of critics of the time said this movie was emotionless which fucking stupid it's stupid a, even a, even um ebert roger, roger ebert, ebert he is not a fan not of a fan of, of this movie of which pisses me off because i'm like are you cold yeah like that scene alone is already heartbreaking and and how and here's my second favorite scene it's funny because the two favorite my two favorite scenes are like the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. One is like a de- quiet, depressing scene of a f- of a of a kid leaving his his family life. We don't even know if he ever sees his mother after that. That's the last time we see the mother. Yeah. So we don't know if Arthur he moves to New York. He moves from London to New York. Yeah. So we don't know if he to, ever to follow the the whole scene. Yeah. So we don't even know if he ever actually reunites with his mother. His his mother might have never seen her child again. Mm-hmm. that's depressing and that happens um, like people come out to their family and their family rejects them they never see them again yeah and my second favorite scene is the complete opposite it's when it's a it's kind of like a love montage it's like a music video between uh brian slade and kurt when they're uh <laughs> satellite of love and, the lou reed song but it's it's like they're on like a ferris wheel or no not not a ferris wheel um a carousel yeah, like kind of, or it's like they're on a car and it's moving at light speed. All the all the lights in the background are like, you know, just out of focus, shallow, and it's just these two men just in absolute revelry, uh, just enjoying the moment. And there's that song playing, and it's loud and it's bombastic, and it's like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I'm like, those are the two scenes where I was like fuck that shit's tight yeah like uh, so there's so many so many it would, when, and it's there's uh, yeah there's so we many could talk about this me forever one of the last things i wanted to talk about uh before we moved on to some to more of the real life stuff is um i don't know if you remember but in top gun we talked about tom cruise's sex scene with uh his coast i can't remember her name right now um uh, his love interest in the film. Do you remember it? Uh, it's like Take your uh, breath away. Uh, Kelly McGillis. Kelly McGillis. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about how just sex scenes nowadays, or I may have not said it, but I'm gonna say it now. Sex scenes nowadays are either non-existent or they're like super gratuitous. Like they're basically porn, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in that podcast I said like I kind of miss the days where sex scenes were treated as like scenes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like. There's nothing shameful about sex. Yeah. You know? And oh, but how I don't know... the world d- disagrees. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, which is... And look, it's it's weird because nowadays you'll have in mainstream Hollywood films, you'll have it where the two leads are kind of like in bed and it's post-coitus. Yeah. And that's it. Or like they're about to initiate sex. And so like the guy will get on top and they'll start making out and that'll be it. Right. There are no sex scenes in any Marvel films, right? Or there's really no real, real hot romantic tension. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's kind of quirky tension, you know? (laughs) Um, On the opposite end, you'll have Game of Thrones. Mm. Where it's just like sex is everywhere. It's basically like a porno, like a really nicely lit porno. Mm -hmm. And I look, and I know this this kind of comes off as pervy and stuff, but there is something like just nice and se- like cool about seeing a sex scene that is actually kind of hot and sexy. Yeah. And that's how I feel about the two sex scenes in this movie between, uh, Brian and Mandy mm-hmm. 
right after the New Year's when he steals Jack Ferry's pendant mm-hmm. and the sex scene at the end between Kurt and Arthur. Yeah. Right? They're not really gratuitous in the sense, you know, it's not like Game of Thrones porn, you know, where it's just like, oh my God, kids, close your eyes. <laughs> um, Like, the sex scene is like hot and sexy there's, like, the fire that's placed right in front of the camera, so it creates, like, this intensity, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, moving. Like, yeah. you really buy the chemistry between Brian and Mandy at that moment. Mm-hmm. So it's the fact that Brian marries her. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's just nice to see these beautiful people, like, embrace each other like that. Like, it's it's just nice seeing people, characters embrace themselves like that, right? And it being taken seriously or with some artistic merit to it. Same thing with the Kurt and and Arthur sex scene. You that don't... one's put a, a bit more... I, I mean, I don't okay. know... That That's that's two men having sex. Mm-hmm. I don't know when the first gay sex scene took place, but this was definitely one of the bigger standouts, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, definitely. And, Especially by know, a mainstream studio. Miramax and it's done really beautiful there's like a scene there's like a where the camera is zooming out Mm -hmm. and the alien ship passes by it's like a a magical moment in this movie and there's like the snow which Mm -hmm. resembles like a snow a snow globe and it's just tasteful Mm -hmm. stuff like that you know what I mean where it's like these are two people that are embracing themselves there's love these are characters but we're taking it seriously I miss sex scenes like those where, like, now everything's just too mm-hmm. sanitized, you know? It's just like, oh, yeah, we, you know, did the hanky-panky. You know, and it's, it's like, okay, come. <laughs> we, we crouched out of frame and exactly. then you can fill in the rest. Like, come on, man. Even, J- even James Bond films aren't doing that anymore. And it's like, come on, man. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Everything's been neutered. And it's like, and like, man, I'm not trying to come off as sexual deviant or anything. But look, y'all listening, all right? Don't tell me you don't like some of these sex scenes. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Nah. Y'all like sex <laughs> as much as everyone else. And seeing two people have a genuine connection in a beautifully shot scene like like that, you're not going to like that? Fuck out of here, man. Well, like, not well, not everybody is, like, you know, there's asexual people, too, that doesn't Wait. do anything to them. But there's, there's people out there who just have, like, this, like, really... Uh, was it pri- like not primitive like draconian view of sex like you shouldn't see that that's indecent i'm gonna make sure everybody knows i don't approve of that but it and, and okay so- <laughs> sure if that's how you feel about sex fine you know don't watch this movie then but there is something about just seeing sexual tension and sexual romanticism in films that isn't either mm-hmm. quirky and plain or brutal and primitive do you know what i mean like i'm not saying you can't have you shouldn't have mm-hmm. either of those like no i'm I'm not going to restrict filmmakers on, to either or but don't forget this look man you, you've got this large in the in the spectrum of sex scenes like it's gotten to the point where we're at either end and there's this giant gap in the middle where i'm like come on guys you know what i mean like just i, <laughs> I don't know it's just come on I, I honestly i mean in the big blockbuster films i mean Anything by Disney, obviously, but even outside of that, there's what. But also, too, they won't even come out and say anyone in their movies. <laughs> no, gay. no, 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 no. See, see, what they'll do is they'll say is in an interview before the film's release, you know, because they got to sell tickets. So like, oh, this movie has one of the first openly gay characters, and it's like, oh shit! All right, so 
It's just like a a guy who says my husband, and then that's the only and line it's he has in multiple Disney films. It ha- it's so many in- times. Even in the Fuck. Beauty and the Beast, you have LaFell dance with the man. I'm like, Dude, is, is that I, it? Do you know how many? Do you know how many men I've danced with in my life? And I ain't gay. So <laughs> what the fuck is that? If that's your definition of gay Disney, you need some catching up to do. In Avengers Endgame, they mm-hmm. did it too, where the director is like, yeah, I met this guy. And I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, but you know, nobody else is gay. Fucking Star Wars did it too, where it's like, there's a openly gay, there's an openly people gay thought, couple. And if you, if you, yeah, people if thought you, Poe was if you gay. look into the background, you will see them kiss. That's a gay people. That, that's you right there. Dark. <laughs> It's, it's dumb. It, you, it's so annoying. Dude, they, people thought that Poe yeah, was gay. They, so what do they do in the third one? They invent a new character to show everybody, hey, he's straight, by the way, in case you well, were wondering, it, he's it's straight. Really, it's really weird what they do with <laughs> Finn. Because it's almost like... Because at least... I, I know we're going off topic, but... We got to find a way to we talk always about have Star to find Wars. Wars. We, we, we <laughs> <have a new laughs> podcast, even Grace Lee. <laughs> Um, what's weird about it there's just something about romance that these big studios are still far behind i'm talking about sex scenes but let's just talk about interracial uh romances not even sexually but just romances in general because i mean the impression that i always got was finn had the hots for ray and you know black guy white woman and then i guess because maybe some studio heads didn't like it or maybe some fans I, I i don't know but someone didn't like it and so they kept them far apart even in the sequel they don't run into each other and in the third one it's like ray ray i have something to tell you as they're about to die and then afterwards when it turns out oh they're not really dead he's like what 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 happened they don't even bring it up they don't want this black dude dating the white chick they can't like keep them apart mm. i don't know who it was the studio heads or the fans who just didn't want to see it happen Dude, they were fans protesting the movie just because he was black. For from the like, teaser trailer, it's, it's like, oh, you can't have a black stormtrooper. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, I mean, why? It's, we don't know what they're doing. Like, I get like, oh, well, they're supposed to be clones. It's like, yeah, but it's been long enough. It's basically, this whole sidetrack has just been that. God, nobody takes romance seriously unless no, 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 and- nobody, no, nobody. Most films don't take romance series because. You'll have romantic comedies that are super trite and basic as fuck, and then you'll have something, and they're very yeah, heterosexual. And then you'll have something too. like um, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is borderline abusive, which is abusive, I think. And it's just so. I don't know. There's a. It's not. I don't know if it's a very good representation of, of that the culture. culture, the BDSM culture. It's not all abuse. But that's all that all that we see will, in mainstream media is like abusive, yeah, BDSM and it's relationships. Like, it's just come on, guys. Romance is a we've all experienced. Well, I mean, most people have experienced this. Like it is, it's a lot more complicated than yeah, men and women. Yeah, come on, come on. <laughs> than men and women of the same race. And it wasn't even like <laughs> and look these sex scenes in uh, the, the, the in um. The, the, the sex scenes in Velvet Goldmine. They're very attractive and beautiful people. I wasn't aroused by them. I was just more like, thank God somebody finally did something right with this romance thing. I just like, I can't. So bored. All, of all the mm-hmm. movies, of all the movies that we've talked about, uh, this and Top... Has the best and sex and scenes? Top Gun. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. 
Mm-hmm. Nothing else has nothing or uh, Candyman kind of, but it doesn't even go as far as having a sex scene. But there is a romantic subplot, but I just don't think romance yeah. is taken very seriously. So it was really refreshing to see a film say, "No, these are these sex scenes. We're going to show them really well. We're going to we're going to do it right, and they deepen the story." I, I thought it was a breath of fresh air. I'm like, thank you for I thank you for treating me like an adult. <laughs> yeah, that was my tirade on sex scenes there was one other thing i wanted to say about the real life thing shoot what was it (sighs) i don't know well basically like when david bowie died you had a bunch of people in the lgbtq community come out and say what david bowie meant to them a lot of famous uh, queer people in the entertainment industry come out and talk about how big it was you know because it was illegal to have gay sex in 67 and then it was illegal up until 67 and then 72 he comes out and says he's gay uh and then he kind of backtracks it a little bit so it it feels like people remember only the before he backtracked a little bit i don't know i guess it doesn't really even though he backtracked it doesn't really taint their view i mean it's i mean i think that's part of celebrity culture more than more than more than gay culture maybe because uh, people do that with celebrities all the time man it's those rose colored glasses you remember the shaded color whatever the fuck the saying is um i mean look at r kelly you know this man was caught on tape doing nasty shit and uh people were like people saw it it's like hey it's fine r kelly can sing that man is talented. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I've seen some some people kind of talk about how their relationship with David Bowie is yeah, complicated. Because well, you know, even though he 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 did mean something to them at a time where not nobody else did that, and it was risky to say I'm gay to a news, you know, a, a news or a some kind of magazine that a bunch of people are going to read, and then in '72 to perform Starman dressed up the way he was putting his arms around his male guitarist that meant a lot. you know like that i can't imagine what that meant to somebody someone gay in 72 who up until five years ago thought they would go to jail for loving who they love it's it's wild we, we talked about this a little bit but uh you know these big statements and stuff they mean a lot they do a lot more uh we we see this a lot more today you know people coming out um you know people people um publicly transitioning you know there's a lot of that happening right now mm-hmm. and a lot of and I, I see this comment a lot where it's like well it's just a publicity stunt it's just uh who gives a shit doesn't matter it's like it, maybe it doesn't matter to you but it matters to someone but it matters to I somebody else you, someone is watching that and they're acting like arthur they're saying that's me that's me Mm-hmm. And or, or they're they're mm-hmm. wishing definitely, or or maybe they wish they could do that, but now because someone that they're looking up to has openly uh, openly come out, now they feel slightly empowered. You can't take that away. Mm-hmm. That is a huge step. And it's just saying, well, fuck it, I don't care. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't help me. It's like okay, you're looking at it very selfishly, bro. The world does not revolve around you. Yeah, it's powerful. It's that scene is very powerful. We don't have to get into it, but you know, there's the um, the the New Zealand or Australian trans athlete who's competing, who made it into the Olympic team. 
That's huge. And what must that mean to someone, someone who's trans? Big, huge. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a lot to unpack there. And this, and this movie did it. This movie did it decades earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 30 years, huh? More than 30? Yes. (laughs) 10, 20. Oh, I'm I'm terrible at math right now. It's 20 years ago. You didn't graduate with a math degree but it's still uh, but, it, but it's uh but it's a very powerful thing this movie was ahead of its time ahead of its time it's so still its i'm time. so glad it's getting the research research that it's getting and i'm and also you know um we we didn't mention this at all but this movie on a technical uh, uh technical is it's a technical achievement in my opinion because this movie was made on a budget Definitely. of, I read seven million. It says nine million on Wiki, but it's actually. Yeah, I read seven million. Is I said I, I read, read seven million uh, under Miramax under Senor Harvey Weinstein, and <laughs> this movie, they talk about it, and it was this movie must have been a nightmare to film. You know, Todd Haynes goes on record, and he was like, it was he hated it. He said he doesn't want to film a movie like that under again. Why? They fell behind schedule. Someone, one of the production executives was like, Todd is miserable. He says that making movies this way is awful and he doesn't want to do it. Well, they asked him, you know, they asked Todd Hayes, was the making of this film joyful for you? And Todd replied, I'm afraid not. We were trying very hard to cut scenes while shooting, knowing that we were behind and we didn't have the money for the overloaded schedule. But there was hardly a scene we could cut without losing essential narrative information. It's wild, and he. This was on a budget of seven million, but they they really squeezed the hell out of those seven millions because this movie looks mm-hmm. impeccable. Definitely. It looks it's insane because this movie captures the era and the essence so well. Um, it's shot on mm-hmm. film, and like there are some moments where it's just shot. It's got that nice glossy but grainy look, and the juxtaposition of both is very pleasing but also jarring and just the lighting design these concerts i'm not even a big concert guy i hate concerts i'm 6'2 do you know how many people (laughs) behind me keep saying can i go in front of you or can i get on your shoulders no bitch stop (laughs) and this movie bring some still sticks time (laughs) but this movie made me want to be at all these concerts and the design i was talking about the the carousel ride you know or the car ride between Mm -hmm. kurt and um uh, kurt and brian it's beautifully lit. Most of this movie is beautifully lit. In that scene where yeah. they're at this like super posh, where everyone is like uh, dressed up and they're all quoting Oscar Wilde. Super um, music is quite like live. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I, I love. I only feel alive when I'm entertained by a glamorous crowd. Or uh, hold on, hold on, one. Uh, yeah, when Slade's career explodes, his manager hires a curated, hedonistic group of sycophants, essentially just to hang around and look cool. I'm not really myself except in the midst of elegant crowds, purrs one of the women flanking the singer during an elaborate press conference. Elegant is a choice word here. Draped in gold, lame, and pearls, the group of hanger-ons is kitsch. The artful haughtiness coupled with ridiculous fashions evades any standard of tastefulness. The entourage is a testament to the super superficiality of the subculture any vestige of substance is veiled in absurd spectacle and this movie gets that 
so well. I mean, in that particular yeah. scene, but just the way the sex scene with Kirk and Arthur is filmed, like it's a snow globe, and how elaborate and theatrical the movie is. They, the cinematography is mwah! and off of seven million. And the, shit, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I think it's a crime that this movie didn't make more money and just like be in people's wheelhouse of movies that they know and quote this, all the time. Like it's this so movie got good. underrated. This was underappreciated. So just underrated. The script alone, but this movie is beautiful, man. Uh, the the music is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. The costumes are beautiful, which it did win an Oscar, so at least it got something. But uh, mm. it won. Oh, I think That's great. I think it won. It didn't win an Oscar. God. Damn it! It won the Palme d'Or. No, no, it didn't, no, didn't it win won that the, either. The uh, artistic award at Cannes, but it didn't win the Palme, Palme d'Or, which I haven't seen the other films, so I, you know I can't say it deserved it. I think it. I understand it being in the selection, but um, in the nominees, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen the rest of the film, so I think I saw the whole. I'd have to look the. I'd, okay. I'd have to look at the list again, but um, and the soundtrack is just amazing. Original songs and also also covers. I know that Tom York. Uh, Tom York. Tom York from Radiohead. He, he performed. He does the cover of 2HB, which is like the one of like the first hits for Brian mm-hmm. Slade. It's a song that uh, his first manager sees him perform, and it's the final song of the movie that plays on the radio. <sighs> which is 2HB is short for To Humphrey Bogart. Oh. Which is a song by the Roxy Music, which I think they perform in another song of theirs is used in this mm-hmm. film. But I think there's one thing that we didn't talk about. It's pretty important. Is why do we think David Bowie didn't like this movie? Oh, uh, that's easy. Uh, because it does not paint him in an ultra clean, nice way. You know, I, it's, these artists are super protective of their images, man. It's why they edited Bohemian Rhapsody the way they did. That's why they rated it PG-13 because... Uh, Freddie Mer- uh, Freddie Mercury's estate doesn't want to portray him as oh as someone who did a bunch of sex and drugs. No, they were like he's a clean family man who did no wrong, nothing illegal. You know, he lived. He was in bed by ten p.m. Kids. No, it's not. It's and even and even have... uh, fucking uh, we we talked about him earlier. What's his name? Um, fucking uh, Rocket Man. Elton John. Elton John, yeah, like that's still, that is, I'm sure I haven't seen Rocket Man, but I am pretty sure it is a, it is still a sanitized image of his story, pretty sure. Uh, um, not as much as as uh the Queen one because no. I don't, there's no gay sex scene in that movie, is there? I don't think so. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> Which is okay, uh, but this this movie is is very like gay right it's there's gay sex scenes there's people like um very gender fluid and all that and brian slade is among is in the middle of all that and during a recent interview with todd haynes i think it was with vice they because the movie carol Mm -hmm. came out right and it was around the time when david bowie died and she asks him about velvet goldmine and todd haynes says that at the time David Bowie thought it was too like he gayed up the glam scene more than it actually was. Wait, which is wait wait say say that again. <laughs> David uh, 
Todd Haynes said that David Bowie disapproved of it partly because of the the movie portrayed the glam rock scene gayer than it actually was. That well, even now, that is one of the big themes of the movie is the intersection of glam rock and gay culture. Like they're almost hand in hand. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then he, but like David Bowie did come out and say he was gay in 72. But he did say he regretted it. The Ziggy in 83. Yeah. But I think that's, I think, well, oh yeah, in 83. And also he did do the, the simulating fellatio on, on stage with Mick Ronson. Probably goes back to your point from what you said earlier. Someone trying to. It's like they're trying to sweep the queerness yeah. out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're trying to just hide it. No, I didn't say those things. No, no, no. But on stage, <laughs> you look like you were blowing him. That's not blowing. That's not. No, what? No, that's not what it was. It's just. It's part of the 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 performance. I was watching him string that guitar really, really closely. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I just just appreciating his work. Nah, dude, like it looked like and, you were blowing him. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> Fake news. And part of it, and also, uh, I they wanted to use David Bowie's songs them. for part Siggy, six of six them. Siggy oh, songs. They use everybody else's songs. They use the T Rex songs. They use the Iggy Pop songs, <laughs> which is which is funny that, that. They, Iggy Pop gave him permission. Bowie's worked yeah. with all these people. And he's produced their albums and stuff. He's in on good terms yeah. with them i think well he was he <laughs> at the yeah, time anyway well, he, he had a falling out with elton john so i mean might have happened with these guys mm. um it's oh. i watching this film like i'm not a big david bowie fan but i could definitely see like oh yeah yeah no he todd haynes doesn't pull his punches but then he also does if anything he did david bowie a favor because he also didn't, because he also so. didn't talk he... about one of the controversies around David Bowie, which is David Bowie's relationship with an uh, with a young with an underage person. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I, I mean, some people dispute others. I mean, who knows, right? But if you get an accusation, that's already kind of a bad sign. Like, I'm not saying, you know, yeah. like people are like, well, no, you have to look at the facts. I have I haven't read the facts into that. I haven't looked into it. It also happened in the, in the early 70s, like 72, 73. I mean, look, like, man. Half, half of his performance, like those performances of that age are like, they're lost. Yeah. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. And I mean, again, we keep going back to this, man. Rock stars do not live PG-13 lives, man. I swear <laughs> to God. Like, you know what I mean? It's... Yeah. And the I think there's a, a quote somewhere in the movie, which I think is going to be my quote for this for this uh, episode is meaning is not in things, but between them. Now, because everything in this movie is referencing something else, but it also has some creative differences. And I think it's telling a truthful story about what if what if David Bowie coming out inspired you to do the same? You know, it, it made you feel validated for the first time in your life. And then he snuffed that away. What if that happened? What's what's what would that story look like if you were that fan? I think in there that the story is very authentic. Yeah. So that's my quote for the movie. I mean, there's a lot of quotes to this movie. I like the eyeliner one, um, but I think my favorite quote would have to be from Mandy Slade. We mentioned that earlier, which is it's funny how beautiful people look when they're walking out the door. It's really 
it's it comes at the perfect time for me right when when she loses brian when arthur's mother loses arthur just and kurt loses yeah, brian too just all at, all at the same time just people who are headed down a path and you don't know if, at the point of no return like everyone's lives at that moment is changing and i think that quote summarizes that moment very beautifully um it's it's very tragic um to to offset yeah this this movie's I, that's why i don't see like brian slate as like a villain i think there's a there's a tragedy in there yes you know yes i did say i said i said all that before but having this conversation i do have to say it he is a tragic character because he can't help but steal the pendant from the pendant from um from jack fairy but he is also someone who uh, yearns for kurt again that's why he goes to the that's why he goes to the death of glam because that death of glam was like the glam scene was something he was a part of if anything he made it mainstream yeah and it's almost like he's unwelcomed there because he's just ups- I, I think he's just upset by how much he's hurt kurt and he knows like that's why he's that's his performance is yeah. his pain which is like the one song i did recognize but it was a powerful performance yeah. gave me danger but it was a powerful yeah. performance um by by kurt wilde mm-hmm I think uh, I think the eyeliner one is probably gonna have to be my second, just because. All right, that's a good it, one. Look, man, I, I had to. I remember that quote, and I'm like, oh, he's gonna say it. He's gonna say it. Yeah, I I had to. Um, <laughs> I had to, cause you know, I have two favorite scenes in this movie. One's really sad, the other one's really uplifting. So I need two quotes. One that's you know represents the sad moment, and the other one that represents just happiness and just nice little subtle happy moment so yeah man this is look i know we said that this movie is really hard to find it is really hard to find you probably won't be able to find it in streaming services for a while but keep this movie in mind velvet gold mine if you ever see it in a store yeah. buy it and watch it and tell us what yeah. you think maybe maybe write a letter to sundance and tell them hey put your put velvet gold mine on your goddamn streaming service. <laughs> I'm going to make sure I cancel my my subscription. I mean, look, I'm sure <laughs> Sundance now is a good streaming service. But why you guys got to lie? You made yourselves a villain. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. They're the villain of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Teasing us and with Velvet Goldmine. Library. Libraries in general are the heroes. They're the real yeah. heroes. Donate to your local library. Especially if they have Velvet Goldmine exactly. in stock. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but, but find, if you ever, if you ever find this movie, please just watch it. And look, maybe it's not, look, maybe just everything we've said does not interest you. In that case, the movie's not for you. Hey, that's fine. But for the long, for the longest time, I felt like this movie wasn't for me, but I got a lot out of it and it's yeah. really a great viewing and it might seem intimidating and kind of artsy fartsy and a little too much and nah, man, look, just just watch it and just let the movie just absorb the movie because from every bit mm-hmm. of research that I've done everyone agrees that this movie is first more than anything it is a feeling that you have to just let in right you could break down everything and you could you could study this all up and stuff but it's like in the end of the day just let the movie consume you let the visuals and the sound and the acting just let let it take you away and that's how I feel listening to the music is I feel like I'm transported somewhere else. It's it's like, 
it's a perfect tribute to glam rock. It, it does. And I think what it does, I think what it does is it keeps, you know, I, I hadn't heard of glam rock, but I'm familiar with it now. And in a weird way, the, that's how the movie is keeping glam rock alive. It's not really the death of glam rock. It's embodied. Mm-hmm. The spirit of it is embodied in this movie in the literal form, in the literal editing and lighting and editing. This movie is glam rock. It captures that campiness, the artifice, but also the meaning, the meaning of it. And that's pretty fucking awesome. That to me is a sign of a good movie. That's someone who made a film not mm-hmm. to make money or not to honor someone just because they were famous this movie had a message and it had an audience and it says i am here for you and you're not alone oh no love you're not alone and that's why this was the perfect pride month film yeah it's it's just like i don't know if there's very many movies out there that i've seen at least that really capture what what it feels like to be bisexual or gay or just to not have like a conforming gender conforming sexual identity more than velvet goldmine i'll tell you this i think look man i I, as i said in the first part i haven't seen that many stories about lgbtq um i just i haven't you know this this is definitely one of my favorite ones though and i know that doesn't mean a lot but it left a huge impression on me and i want to go back and revisit this shit i'm gonna find a way to find to buy this movie i want it in my collection yeah same even if in the next 10 years, I still can't find it. On, you can't find it online. At least I'll know I have it and I can revisit this. And maybe I'll understand just a little bit more about music. And then I'm really going to get that reference of, oh, my God, they did that because of that. So, yeah. And like this, the choice of songs that they oh, I could, we have to end this episode because I could go on about all the songs they chose and what they mean you and what the, they mean in you know the, what the film. Problem is. We're going to end the episode. I'm going to be in the shower and I'm going to be like fuck i didn't even talk about this i didn't even talk about we didn't even talk about that so and look man if anything i'm always encouraging people to watch films just watch them what are you gonna lose this movie's two hours long you think that you're so you're so you're you, you spend all your time so well no man like there are you know hours in your day minutes yeah, let's see how many hours you have on Instagram. Exactly. <laughs> just dedicate to. I have a lot. Two hours. <laughs> oh if you God. don't like it, hey, that's cool. Now you have an opinion, you know, and now you've furthered your film catalog and your knowledge of filmmaking. And now you understand a little bit more of LGBTQ history, big history, you mm-hmm. know, cultural history. So why not? It's just two hours. Just do it. Come on. You know, do it. Do it. Yeah. Do it. All right. That's all we have for today, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening to our episode. We are on Twitter at retrograde underscore pod. We are on fate Instagram at retrograde underscore pod. You can email us at retrogradepod at gmail.com. And we're on Facebook too. It's retrograde podcast, but I'm very slow with updating. I don't think I've updated <laughs> the last four movies we've done on Facebook, but maybe you can contact us on there. Check out some of our little videos. We put one out after every episode release to entice people. Uh, So maybe, you know, if you know someone likes movies, maybe show them our videos and tell them where to find us. We very much appreciate that. Yeah, send us an email if you want to hear us talk about a film. Austin and I will be doing a modern grade episode pretty soon or uh, in in a few months maybe. If you have any suggestions of films that 
after 2010 that you'd like for us to talk about on that episode, yeah, hit us up. DM us, email us, whatever you'd like. So thank you very much, guys. We hope you have an awesome day. Thank you for listening. All right. See ya.